This is getting out of hand. Now there are two of them. Where's your innovation, huh? Sequels suck. Do the same thing. Everyone's happy. It's all about money, boys! Here we go again. But, you know what I always say? Speak softly and drive a big tank. Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of Franchise Fatigue. This is a show where we explore film series one animated TV season at a time. I'm your host, Gabe Green, and as always, I am here with my co-pilot, James Hamrick. How's it going, man? Pretty good. Excited to continue this journey into the series. Yeah, uh, with what I think is arguably an even better season than last time. Um, so tonight, we are continuing our journey through the 3D animated Clone Wars series with Season 2, Rise of the Bounty Hunters. And I'm not sure if these these uh, uh, subtitles are really cool or really cheesy. It's like, yeah, Rise of the Bounty Hunters sounds really cool, but there's only like seven seasons, I mean, seven episodes out of the season that contain bounty hunters. And even the ones that do doesn't particularly feel like they're rising. It's just like, hey, let's focus on a bounty hunter real quick. Like, it doesn't feel thematically. I guess just having Cad Bane somewhere in your show means you could just call the whole show Rise of the Bounty Hunters and yeah, I'll go with it. You call it Rise of Cad Bane. That is true. All right, but before we get into that, I want to ask you guys, if you enjoy this show, to please go and rate and review us on iTunes and like us on Facebook. Um, so this week and as we go through these the two animated Star Wars TV shows, we're not we're going to kind of switch up our schedule a little bit. We're not going to be doing the normal uh, behind the scenes look at the production because there's just not that much information available on the making of these uh, TV shows. But we're just going to mention some of the new uh, regular actors that came in, and maybe if, if there's some kind of behind the scenes story that's interesting, we'll mention it within the context of the episode it uh, it relates to. Let's just dive right into it. James, uh, why don't you uh, tell us the new actors that came in for this season? All right. Um, so we have Duchess Satine, who is voiced by Anna Graves. Uh, and she's not a new character, but we failed to mention the voice actress for Luminara. Um, she's voiced by Olivia Dabo, I believe. Um, and Cad Bane, man, just a, a fan favorite for me, uh, is voiced by the same voice actor as Count Dooku, I found out, uh, Corey Burton. Uh, Aura Singh is voiced by Jamie King. Uh, Rush Clovis uh, is voiced by Robin Atkins Downs. And lastly, Barris Ophi is voiced by Meredith Salinger. I believe it's pronounced, but I may have gotten that completely wrong. So yeah, our first episode is Holocron Heist. Uh, it's directed by Justin Ridge and written by Paul Dini. And this one, after Ahsoka is is very insubordinate on a battle uh, on a battle in Felucia. She's assigned to guard duty at the Jedi Temple um, by the Jedi Council. And meanwhile, Cad Bane is commissioned by Darth Sidious to steal a Jedi holocron containing the location of all the four sensitive children from uh, from a highly secured vault in the Jedi Temple. And yet he hires a Claudite bounty hunter named Cato Parasiti, which is <laughs> I love these Star Wars names. Uh, yeah, to help him infiltrate the base, I mean, not the base, the temple. One really thing that stuck out to me is kind of odd is that the opening of this is pretty much exactly what we saw happen on the final arc of the previous season uh, in the episode Storms, Storm of Ryloth, where you have Ahsoka kind of being too overeager in battle and leading her troops in disaster, and then she kind of gets into trouble for that. It's pretty much the same beat, but I'm guessing they wanted to uh, 
to do more with their character within that that context of the character arc, and, and rather than have us, you know, rewatch what happened in Storm of Ryloth, they're, they're just going to kind of, I guess, create a new scenario for her to basically do the exact same thing, so she can have the growth going forward. Because obviously, <laughs> these weren't meant to be viewed, you know, the same a day after each other. They, they were. This would have been separated by an entire, you know, a season, a season break. And and I I don't mind too much because I think the the scene they create is actually quite good. <laughs> Just the image of Ahsoka on top of that giant tank, deflecting lasers is really cool. And and uh, Obi Wan and Anakin are are trying to come in and trying to convince her to leave, but she wants to press the attack. <laughs> you know, he's like, "Where's Ahsoka? Following your teachings? Is she winning?" <laughs> yeah, I like that scene a lot. Um, I think. You can really see, I mean, obviously it's very intentional, but you can really see the influence that Anakin has had on Ahsoka. And even though, you know, like, you can say maybe she's a bit annoying in this scene, to me it it makes sense because you almost understand her frustration. Like, she is acting completely in line. I mean, Obi-Wan even pointed out, she's acting completely in line with her master. You know, she even said, I I think this is where she says, right, uh, Master Anakin always taught me never to run from a fight or something like that. I think it was within this scene. Mm-hmm. Um, and so really, you know, the the lesson here is for Ahsoka to learn, but at the same time, it's kind of Anakin reaping the consequences of the kind of master he's been. Yeah. And I do like that he sort of, he, he does stick up for her in the Jedi, in the uh, Jedi temple when they're going before the council and they assign her to guard duty. <laughs> I like the line where he's like, guard duty, how long? And just like basically just scowls longer now. <laughs> I love the shadows over his face. It's weird because I spent like forever for some reason thinking that this the Claudite character was Zam Wessel from Attack of the Clones. Like I knew she was dead for some reason. I never connected. Yes, she's dead. This is supposed to be after that, so this can't be her. Just for the longest time, I thought it was uh, her, but I was, they're just the same species. They're not the same person. Yeah, and. I really like the idea of bringing that species in again. But I do have one complaint. I feel like I, this is my complaint for like every kind, like every time this is brought up in these kind of genre with the uh, shapeshifters, the fact that whenever they shift, like they even mimic the clothing. Oh, no, no, no. The clothing is a hologram. That's why it, it shifts. Like you see the, oh. the hologram shifting. So it's just her, um, her changing herself. But the clothing and everything else is just a hologram. Okay, well, never mind. I redact that. Yeah, and I guess we should probably mention that we are introduced in this episode to the coolest character in all of Star Wars, uh, Boba Who. It is Cad Bane. Um, Just a really, really awesome bounty hunter. And just there's so much about him that is awesome. The fact, just his design, his profile. He's got the the wide-brimmed cowboy hat kind of thing and the, the trench coat with the two blasters on the side. And then he has that really awesome, uh, you know, vo- uh, modulated voice. <laughs> and but on top of all of that, like Boba Fett, you know, Boba Fett has an awesome costume. But Cad Bane's actually cool when he does things. He's not going to fly into a Sarlacc's mouth. <laughs> yeah. Usually I really hate it whenever like there's like this material that exists outside of like the main thing, whether it's like books in a in a game series or books in a film series or shows or whatever i i usually get annoyed when someone's like oh well 
you probably haven't read this book or watched this show, but there's this other uh, character who's way cooler than the guy you like. But I'm absolutely that person here. Like, anytime (laughs) anyone talks about how cool Bubba is, I'm like, all right, let me tell you about Cad Bane. Uh, Because he is just such a cool character. Everything he does is cool. His, like, little jet boots, his awesome hat, those cool, like, the voice modulation thing on his face. Like, everything about this character is awesome. The voice acting is amazing he's like he's always going to be the coolest character in whatever room he's at yeah and he's actually a real threat like what i do like how they have characters in here that that can be an actual challenge to the jedi and i think cad bane's really at the top of the list where he you know he's he has all those gadgets and he knows how to use them to you know augment the fact that the jedi have lightsabers in the force he's 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 a you know a physical threat to the jedi and that's really cool yeah, and what they do so well throughout the series whenever he's involved is they make it believable. I feel like too often, sometimes you can almost feel like like the Jedi, maybe not the Jedi, but just in different series, you can feel someone's abilities are being scaled back or someone else's abilities are being scaled up uh, just to ju- like to justify this fight. But the way they have him fight with his gadgets and his his own just, you know, tactics and his intelligence... I never feel like I have to suspend my disbelief or that Obi-Wan is somehow less powerful than he should be or Cad mm-hmm. is somehow more powerful. Like, it always feels like it makes sense in the context. <laughs> and uh, I, I'm not terribly familiar with Seth Green, but I, I'm aware that he's fairly popular. He voices... Uh, Toto. Yeah, Cad Bane's very, very devoted, but uh, I'm appreciated. Droid Toto 360. Um, and I, I like how you know, he's completely thrilled to be there and he all he wants to do is serve his master and cad bane just could not care less it's actually really sad because over the course of the episode he becomes like super endearing to me um like i love whenever he says you know like oh memory malfunction it's like i have no memory of a malfunction wait i have no memory of a malfunction like he's so naive but so inherently like likable even when he's like assisting the bad guys um I thought his ending. And then he is just blows him up. Such a sad ending. <laughs> I guess another thing to mention about this episode is that it makes me like uh, Madame Jacosta. She was rather annoying in Attack of the Clones, but I think she's she's pretty likable here. It's it's funny that you say that because literally the next thing I have in my nose is just take that Jacosta. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it's, I feel like it's it's such a small moment in Attack of the Clones, but. Star Wars being Star Wars, every single frame of every single movie is overanalyzed. <laughs> and so whenever that's all we had from her, as even like as a kid, I was like, oh, this is Obi-Wan Kenobi you're talking to. Um, but I, I think Just it's... respect, old lady. Exactly. But I do think it's cool that they're bringing characters like that back and giving them more prominent roles. And it's cool now that, you know, we only saw that little snippet there, but now we kind of see her more day-to-day activities and understand the function... Um, she serves so and again i'm just gonna say that throughout this whole series is i love seeing these side characters actually do things and become characters and in, in a weird way you almost feel that in the films like you project everything you know about them from the series onto their scenes in the movies and the show does that so well the plan to me is so cool um with trying to divert their attention and make them think like pretty much go through a plan that were that what they were actually after it's also a really cool like heist plan or whatever like stealing the data they thought they they were getting 
Um, but it makes such sense because of how thought out that plan is so that whenever he actually does get the holocron, the Jedi are like, wow, they, I mean, they definitely got the best of us. Um, and so it's just cool that you can tell like a fairly fun little heist story within this 20 minute episode. Yep. And uh, next episode is called Cargo of Doom. It's directed by Rob Coleman and written by George Christick and Scott Murphy. In this one, after after stealing the uh, Jedi holocron with all the, the locations of all the Force-sensitive children, Cad Bane kidnaps uh, Jedi Master Bola Rapal, who's the only uh, Jedi capable of opening the holocron. So Ahsoka and Anakin are tasked to go rescue him and capture Bane. But uh, in a really, really gruesome scene... Uh, Ropal is tortured to death before they could rescue him, and so he has to set a trap to capture Ahsoka so that he can use her, I mean, leverage her to force Anakin to open the holocron for him instead. And just going back to that, this is a kid's show? <laughs> it just, yeah, it, it's crazy. Like, after he dies, the guy's, like, just poking him with a shock stick, like, just, like, jabbing at his limp body, like, oh, well, I guess we're gonna need another Jedi. And... Yeah, it's it's gruesome. And it's so unflinching. It's like, ah, well, he's dead. And then all of a sudden he sees the next two Jedi coming. He's like, okay, I still have this. Like, whether it's, you know, blowing up his own droid who's so devoted to him or, you know, torturing a guy to death. He's just so nonchalant and unflinching about all of this. And it's he's heinous and evil and everything. But it's like, you still can't help but be like, man, this guy is cool. Yeah, you know, beyond the look, beyond the voice, beyond all the cool gadgets and his fighting ability, it's it, like what really makes Cad Bane great is his ability to think on his feet like that. And he's always, you know, he's always able to stay one step ahead of anyone, even Jedi as good as uh, Anakin and Ahsoka. <laughs> and and they keep finding up with increasingly crazy and awesome ways to use the ATTE tanks. <laughs> like, they're like, we don't have landing craft. Well, let's just drop the tanks through space onto the enemy ship. Yeah, it's as awesome as it sounds. And I love that uh, Admiral Yulara is just kind of forced into this situation where, like, the people running around and coming up with the plans is, like, to me, the perfect team of Anakin, Ahsoka, and Rex, where it's, like, <laughs> the one of the three of them can just su- suggest something crazy, and the other two will be like, all right, that's, yeah, let's do that. Sounds and awesome. Exactly. You, ha- you almost get that vibe from them. And so to have Yulara just kind of be like, and of every Jedi that I could be, you know, serving with, it had to be this one. Um, but I just thought that was a, a fun dynamic to see someone who, like, really is the more kind of straight-laced, like, by-the-books kind of person uh, thrown into this dynamic of people who are almost going to, not like one-upsmanship, but really feel like there's no idea you can suggest where the other two are going to be like, I don't know. Yeah. And another really cool scene in here is the uh, the zero gravity battle where Cad Bane turns off the uh, the gravity as the Republic troops come in, and you have had to have been a nightmare to put together. But you have all these people floating around and shooting at each other, and and you have Anakin and Ahsoka bouncing around, you know, chopping droids, and just a really well realized sequence. <laughs> just more of the brutality, like when when something like a clone is shot, their body just kind of floats in the background. As everyone else is fighting. Yeah, so many times in this series, and this is one of those moments, I just think, like, this sequence is shot like we're watching a movie. Like, they really care about the cinematography and little details, like their bodies just kind of floating away. Uh, So this whole time I was like, man, this would look so cool live action right now. 
Mm-hmm. And we get a great character moment from Anakin when um, Cad Bane has Ahsoka captured and he threatens just to uh, release her into space if he doesn't open the uh, the holocron for him. And you, and like this is kind of the character of Anakin in a microcosm. He will he will never allow the people he cares about to die, but he he will save them even if it means making morally compromised decisions that will very likely lead to deaths and put even more people in danger down the road. If it means you know saving someone he cares about right now, and that, that, you know, that that's 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 his legacy at the in the end of you know what led him to become Darth Vader. Yeah, and I feel like also this is again we talked about it a little bit towards the end of season one, but uh, I think this is just again proving or Ahsoka proving or justifying I guess her inclusion. She's becoming like a cooler character with every episode. You know, we had that kind of annoying bit, but I feel like. Her disobeying orders at the beginning was in line with everything the show had said. So, but I love that scene where you know she's right there at the airlock and she knows the stakes and she is saying like, "Don't do it, Anakin." Like, mm-hmm. she at that point is so dedicated to the order and the cause that she was ready to give her life for it. And I just feel like even over one season, we've really seen her grow a lot as a character. Yeah. And <laughs> can we just talk about how again how awesome Bane is? Where he you know he. he is able to quickly change into the clone's armor and escape and use that to escape uh, by flying out with them and pretending he was he was killed on the ship and then jumping onto another ship and getting out of there. It's like this like you can't beat this guy. He's 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 better than you. Just accept it. That's what's so cool. Like you think about that from his position. Like he's fully like fully dressed as one of them in a ship, like shoulder to shoulder with these guys and then landing on a ship with an army of these guys. And he just plays it so cool. You, you can't help but wonder like what, what's his headspace at that moment? Like I am the number one target on like the flagship of my enemy right now. Um, but he, he just pulls it off. And again, that I guess we're, we're talking about um, the next episode, children of the force now, but I get that mo- his escape it it feels you know like it's completely believable you know you have a guy who's by himself a non-force user on this ship and you say you know oh he was able to escape and they kind of they knew it was him too as he escaped you think like there's no way you can pull that off believably but just him you know taking out the two guys in his way jumping aboard the first thing and like hightailing it out of there it it, it works in the moment mm-hmm and the next episode, as you said, as you said is uh, Children of the Force. It's directed by Brian Kalen O'Connell and written by Henry Gilroy and Wendy Miracle. So after Cad Bane escapes, the Jedi, they meditate together to try and, and they are able to detect the uh, the targeted children through the Force. Kenobi goes to Rhodia, but it's too late. Anakin and Ahsoka set a trap on Naboo, which captures Bane. And then they all, oh gosh, the scene where they all interrogate him together is just... Spooky. Yeah, but it's just great, such great filmmaking. Like, their voices all kind of blend together as each one says it louder and louder. Then you just, like, hear, like, this roiling chaos inside Cad Bane's mind. The camera's just, like, going way into their faces. It's really well put together. Uh, just really good uh, cinematography and music. It, yeah, it definitely is creepy. And it's in a you know, kind of a, a questionable Jedi moment. Like, man, like you, when you're seeing you know, what they're doing to this man. Yeah, I was about to bring that up too. Um, you almost wonder if a character like Luminara or Kit Fisto or someone would have done it. 
because before the scene happens, you have Mace Windu saying, you know, we, we may fry his brain. And like, it seems as if like it's just a collective shrug and they go in there and do it anyways. It, it, it is a little weird that Kenobi's going along. Like, Mace Windu and Skywalker, yeah, they do it in a heartbeat. Obi-Wan, I don't know. Maybe if it was like Kit Fisto or, or something like that. Yeah, I, don't, I feel like, I don't his, Obi-Wan, I feel like might still, I mean, he's, He's taking over people's minds all the time. Plus, oh, yeah. That's he, his specialty. Uh, yeah, and I mean, he learned from Qui-Gon, who is, you know, going mm-hmm. to use Republic credits and try to overtake. Like, when you think about that moment of Phantom Menace, he knows that Republic credits are no good out there. And he's like, well, I'm just going to, you know, use the force on this guy and give him money useless out here. Yeah. While Anakin and Ahsoka go to rescue the, the children on Mustafar, Obi-Wan and uh, Mace Windu take... Cad Bane to lead them to, I forget. I think I think they, they think he's taking them to his employer or something. But he takes them back to his home, which is like this crazy tricked out thing where everything is this deadly booby trap, and he's able to escape. It's like this crazy the, the lasers cutting across the floor and all the gun turrets and everything. And again, it's, it's so easy to buy. Like mm-hmm. Cad Bane is exactly the guy who would have that set up. Yeah. Um. And man, oh gosh. And it really reveals, just like, yeah, Cad Bane is completely evil to the core. He, he literally poses as a Jedi to take a child away from their mother so they can be experimented on and possibly killed. It's like, yeah, th- this guy is no good. And it's like, it's not even like that's one of those implications the show doesn't want you to think about. He, he brings it up and is like, oh, you want me to kidnap these kids for your experiments? That's a bit small time for a Sith Lord. It matters no much, or it doesn't matter at all to me if the money's right. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, he knows what he's doing. And like they're literally talking about with Sidious and the, the, the medical droids. You know, while experimenting on children this age, they, they rarely survive the, the slave conditioning procedure. And he's like, whatever, just do it. Uh, and just while we're talking about that, though, again, this, it's really cool to see these places that we know have so much more significance later on, like, this is now, I think, the the chronological introduction to Mustafar, and even just being there in those facilities and seeing like that aesthetic that's so familiar, uh, I thought was really cool. Um, and that scene was really intense. Whenever the the droids have like the children and Anakin and Ahsoka are having to try to battle without like you yeah. know cutting the cutting up these kids with these laser swords and. And the way the droids move and fight with, with like the like these vibro blades and stuff, it's really it, it feels dangerous. Even though they're they're, they're you know, droids with these tiny weapons against shadow lightsabers, it still feels scary. Next episode is Bounty Hunters, directed by Stuart Lee and written by Carl Ellsworth. This was aired as a season two, episode seventeen. Whatever, we don't care about that. And uh, th- as far as I know, this is the only episode that's dedicated to someone, and it's dedicated to Akira Kurosawa for very obvious reasons because it is the seven samurai or magnificent seven it is you know it's literally that beat for beat you have a anakin obi-wan and ahsoka they crash land on felucia and meet a village plagued by hondo's pirates they've already so the village has already hired four bounty hunters suji embo rooney paramita and serapas uh to defend them and so the jedi join in and to try to rally the cowardly villagers um I, th- I think the opening uh, crash sequence is kind of pretty fun. And I-, I love the ejection pods they have, which are basically these giant balloons that enclose each each person. They just kind of bounce around until they hit the ground. A little bit speed racer. 
Yeah, very, very Speed Racer, which is an awesome movie and very underrated. Go watch it if you haven't seen it. Uh, <laughs> and was it, is it just me or do these bounty hunters seem kind of wo- woefully underqualified for the, the bounty hunter life, especially after being with Cad Bane? These people don't seem like they'll, they'll survive very long in this world. Yeah, that almost feels like the point, maybe. Like, they they have a mortal code. It feels like, you know, the, the typical bounty hunter doesn't. And maybe that's almost even, like, an inhibitor in that line of work. Yeah, they, they seem very honorable. Like, when they're, they're confronting Honda, they seem to really, really hate pirates. They're like, you're not that different. But okay. <laughs> Well, maybe they're very selective in the jobs they take. Did you notice that uh, the um, the leader, I, I, I believe it's Suji, has uh, Boba Fett's gun from Empire Strikes Back? Really? Mm-hmm. No, I didn't it's, know it's the exact, Yeah, it's the same gun. But yeah, so uh, obviously this one uh, sees the return of Jim Cummings as Hondo, and yeah, he's just fun again. Like, Kenobi, Skywalker, I can't believe you came all this way <laughs> to see me. I thought we were friends. He just carries himself in such a, a fun way. He's obviously playing the whole time, but just how completely innocent he plays everything. You know, despite the night when he's tormenting these villagers and stealing their crops, he's like, hey, it's just business. That's the thing. It, it, he's almost one of those villains that you kind of buy it when he said it's not personal. It's like, it is just business. And I also like that he's not the character where it's like, he's a quote-unquote bad guy, but... He's got his heart in the right place. Like, no, he's just a <laughs> no. really likable bad guy. Oh, yeah. Like, especially like he he gets Anakin to save his life and then still tries to kill him. Yeah. So the, the action is fun. I think this episode is a bit too short. Like, it's literally, you know, the Jedi come in, they train the villagers and the very first attack they win and over it. So, you know, it follows kind of all the beats of the, the uh, Magnificent Seven, but it feels like it's kind of rushed. After um, a montage where they learn everything they need to learn. Yeah, you can always learn everything you need to learn in the montage. Exactly. You have the right music, and you're good. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the, the fight's pretty fun. Uh, we have to mention Embo, which is probably the coolest bounty hunter out there after Cad Bane. He's the guy with the giant uh, frisbee hat. <laughs> and just the way he moves and uses it, like, he can use his hat for anything. Like, he'll run with his head down using it as a shield, or he'll throw it as a, as a, as a projectile. And later, later on in the season, like in season five, I think, we see him, um, or season six, we see him using it as like a, a, a snowboard. He's just a really cool character and, and voiced uh, by Dave Filoni himself. Nice. I didn't know that either. I have a feeling you're a big fan of these, second, these next two episodes. Uh, first one is The Zillow Beast, uh, directed by Giancarlo Volpe and written by Craig Titley. Uh, in this one, you have the Republic is assisting the dogs on Malastare, and while testing a new bomb, they awaken the dreaded Zillow Beast, who is the ancient enemy of the dogs. Uh, and so the Jedi want to save this creature, who is supposedly the last of his species, but the dogs just want to kill him. This this is very clearly just a throwback to kaiju movies. I mean, even down to the fact that it's the whole thing, the ancient evil is awoken by the nuclear menace, or in this case, just some droid popper bomb. But yeah, it, it, it still opens with, it's awoken by the bomb. Yeah, I mean, this first episode is Godzilla, and the next episode is King Kong. Um, and I, I love that, how, like, they're very, very clear about that. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm a big fan of this. Uh, these, I think, one, I'm still just 
I'll, it's so easy to make me a six-year-old kid again if you put big monsters with cool designs. And I think this is a really cool but weird and unique design for a giant monster. But one of the things that I I really appreciated about this first episode was the way it was shot. It it feels like, I mean, uh, I, I listen to a, a couple of Star Wars podcasts and one of them, uh, Rebel Force Radio, they actually have Filoni on every now and then. Oh wow! And um, he has—he's made it like very clear he's a huge Godzilla fan. I think one of the episodes he—he he had to—he had to fly in somewhere and he was recording immediately afterwards. And they asked him what he did, and he just spent the entire flight watching like the original Japanese dub, like or not Japanese, the original Japanese language Godzilla movies of like the '60s. So he's just a huge fan of that genre, and I feel like it really comes through here. Yeah. Um the sense of scale that he has. Uh, both in the pit, like when Anakin is actually down there, you feel like you're just watching this enormous monstrosity around him. Um, but the, the scene, and I'm like, this is one of the coolest scenes ever. And it's obviously like, it's ob- also one of the ones where it's like so clearly paying homage is whenever he climbs out of the pit. And it's that moment in probably like every Godzilla movie where they try to fight him with the military, where you got all the tanks lined up in that perfect line and they're all just being swatted away and stepped on, and there's this just huge rain of destruction. Uh, and it was it was really cool to see that in Star Wars. And oh, the, the shots of him framed against the sky with all like the lasers crisscrossing around him is just absolutely beautiful. And again, like the sense of scale they're able to give um, with the animation and just the, the the camera angles they choose really give you that sense of weight and scale and the sound design you feel the weight as the thing moves but even going like even going before that just the bat the the short battle we see is is crazy like you can see like the increase in budget and and like just skill like from season one to season two like the the scale of that battle with all the clones and all the droids and there's the planes flying over and all the different uh, artillery and just you know the, the compositions they are able to get within that, and the, just the grit and texture is is very is just like a huge step up uh, from what it was before, and it was already really impressive before. Yeah, they definitely got a bigger budget this time around. I don't think this episode could have looked quite this good in season one. One of the things that always bothers me about this episode, though, to me, is Windu is completely overstepping his bounds. I feel like in trying to keep it alive. Well, and you have the Doug saying. It's pretty much a, a prophecy, you know, as our ancestors foretold, this would come back. Like, we honor their memory by fulfilling this prophecy and killing the last. Like, for Windu, who's, you know, like, the Jedi have their prophecies, and those are to be listened to, and, and you're supposed to pay attention. Um, but he, Yeah, but the dogs are weird. It's just, it just is like, the, Windu is just saying, you know, like, our prophecies, like, those are legit. Oh, you can talk about your well, ancestry. Then again, he's the one that doesn't trust the prophecies. That's true. He doesn't care about Anakin. So the prophecy says. But even so, like, I don't know, there are moments where I'm like, you're just going pretty far. Like, it'd be one thing for him to say, we're not going to help you kill this thing. It'd be another for, like, whenever they're loading their cannons and he pulls a saber on him and he's like, I order you to start. Like, you have no authority here. It feels hypocritical of him, you know, considering he's the one who's like, you know, we're peacekeepers, not warriors. And he's like on this foreign planet that at this at the moment 
you know, they're, I mean, they're trying to broker a deal with him, so he really doesn't have any sort of authority there. Um, and so for him in the middle of that to try to, you know, quash the fulfillment of their, you know, the prophecy of their ancestors, it, it just feels like he's overstepping something. Well, that would be the Jedi way. <laughs> uh, the next episode is The Zillow Beast Strikes Back, directed by Stuart Lee and written by Stephen Melching. In this one, the Zillow Beast is brought back to Coruscant, where Palpatine orders it to be studied, and then he orders it killed, despite uh, the fact that it's probably sentient. Uh, then it escapes and wreaks havoc, as monsters do. Uh, <laughs> he tries to hunt down Palpatine, which is always a little weird. Like, how does he know where Palpatine is? Like, he seems to know exactly where he is as he... As he, you know, he leaves that train of wreckage across the city. He's a smart one. So th- this one is literally King Kong. You know, he escapes from prison and he goes, you know, rampaging across the city and until he, you know, tr- climbs the biggest building in the town and then they have to kill him and everyone's sad at the end. But it's good. It's a very entertaining yeah, yeah. episode. And again, the cinematography here is really great too. You know, with the, the ships as they're following him, you just have these really cool images where he and the ship are both in the, like the same image and the, you know, it's one to play up his scale in the first episode, but here having him be so big and you almost got like three different, three different sets of scale all in these same shots where you've got these huge skyscrapers that he's just kind of looking up at. And then you've got these little people and ships flying around him and it never feels cheap. It feels like grand and epic yeah i really like the shots where he's kind of framed across the sky crashing across the buildings of coruscant and you you have little things where kind of anakin's like he he never really cared about the beast he's much more sympathetic to a centralized power like when uh, padme comes to him try to get him to convince his friend uh, palpatine to save it he gets in there and like halfway through he starts arguing for palpatine instead yeah i i do like that that they don't have him ally like instantly or well he he does immediately with padme but they keep him like they keep him true to his character where the anakin we know would be like oh no that makes sense yeah and uh, they are able to make it you know genuinely tragic when they finally have to kill the zillow beast with the, the fuel and you know the music comes in it, it, it i just, I ra- rarely feel anything for, for movie monsters but i did it, it felt sad you know like just something something's been destroyed and you know the jedi have messed up here yeah it it is cool that they're able to follow these beats like so clearly and step by step and still feel really genuine and like that moment is a sad moment it's not like all right here's we got to end it with oh man the monster's dead like it feels someone watching this who had never seen uh, a kaiju film would watch this and be completely invested in this story and it's it's Relying on tropes, but to really strong effect. Yeah. Uh, next episode is Senate Spies, directed by Stuart Lee, written by Melinda, um, written by Melinda Sue, Sue, <laughs> written by Melinda Sue, Drusy Greenberg, and Brian Larson. This one we see that the war is taking a strain on Anakin and Padme's marriage. They're assigned to spy on oh, an old friend of Padme's, Senator Rush Clovis. Anakin doesn't want to, but Padme insists. And they travel with Clovis to be the tra- meet with the Trade Federation on Cato Nemoidia. Is it just me or are Padme's like razor sharp abs rather disturbing? <laughs> it's weird how like defined they are. <laughs> yeah, um, and it, it, I do like you know the showing the fact that you know she's a high ranking senator and he's 
high-ranking general of the fact that they, they, they can't even get a quiet night alone together. Although it, it was kind of annoying to where he, for very obvious reasons, doesn't want his, you know, his wife going undercover as a spy on Clovis as he's traveling to hostile worlds. Like, for, the crazy thing is, she starts out saying, like, as a matter of, you know, professional principle, I cannot spy on my coworker. He's like, yeah, good. You probably should do that anyway. Then she's like, what? You don't want me to do it? Well, then I'm going to do it. It's like, what, what, the, what happened to your principles? You, you're literally doing this despite your husband, even though the fact that you agreed with him 10 minutes before. It's like, come on. They kind of act, they really act like children in this episode. Yeah, I think they make both characters way too petty for me to care too much about this episode. Um, oh, it's broken. Too bad. <laughs> okay, I laughed at that part. Yeah. Um, but, <laughs> when he uh, rocks the ship as Clovis is going to kiss her. Which is, that's, that moment, I know it's just such a throwaway moment, but that moment has always made me feel weird where it's like, he's been subtly not so subtle Clovis has you know where it's I mean oh, Clovis is a total sleaze <laughs> oh he's an absolute sleaze but the thing is he's doing it in that way where it's like you can pretend to be above reproach where he's like oh I'm you know I'm interested in our friendship more than the poly like he anybody who has any sense knows what he's doing but he's it's like he's saying things where it's like on paper, he never did any of this. And then you have that one moment before there's been any sort of major connection. They're still on the flight there. He's like legit going in hard for like a kiss. <laughs> it's just, and Padme, who's usually like this strong, like stronger kind of female character, is just kind of like sitting there uncomfortably. Like if Anakin didn't rock it, it was just going to like, I don't know. That, that moment was always really weird to me. And so are we supposed to understand that this is the guy that she was talking about in the field in Attack of the Clones? I don't think so. I think she says that. I think she says his name in that episode. Mm. It would have been a cool cool connection. That would have been cool. Now I kind of wish that's what it was. Because they obviously had some sort of relationship because because of, you know, of all the um, liberties Clovis has taken. They obviously had some sort of rapport going on. Yeah. And I feel like they're definitely hinting at something that could have been romantic in the past. Oh, obviously. Oh, yeah. Like Clovis is still completely taken with her. He's still um, haunted by the kiss she never should have given. <laughs> uh, so, I'm like obsessed by it. Yeah. Before uh, we move into more like the stories it gets going when they get to Kato Nemoidia, one of the things that I, I thought was cool, and it's cool anytime they kind of subtly hint at this, um, of like everyone around Anakin kind of noticing he and Padme where like you have that line of Obi-Wan going like she seems familiar with the ship and here Obi-Wan Obi-Wan's known it since Attack of the Clones he's just looking the other way (laughs) (laughs) he's he's not a good master um but here like I like the moment whenever Anakin was like Yoda says you know that they they did all those things together in the past and Anakin's like I didn't know that and Yoda's like why should you know that (laughs) <laughs> and he's got, he realized he's kind of been called out and he tries to cover it up. Uh, but I just thought that was cool. There was one scene I really like to where Anakin walks in on uh, her and her and Clovis embrace it. He like is about to explode, but then she shows him the disc, that, what she's actually trying to do. And, you know, he actually, I, 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 every time I rewatch, I, I keep expecting him to actually do ruin something stupid. Ruin the plan he, completely. Yeah, to ruin it. But he actually, he does the smart thing for once. Yeah. Yeah, there's not really a whole lot in depth to say about this episode after that, but I think I wish that the ending didn't. The resolution just felt a bit too easy for Clovis. 
Or for all of them? Well, yeah, just for everybody. And uh, too, re- too abrupt. Where it's like... We need to talk. <laughs> yeah, and then just ending there. Not really sure. I mean, I guess there's a, several different implications you could get from that. But even for like the heroes, it's Padme's poisoned and we're on this foreign planet and all of these different things are going on. And I just feel like things are wrapped up super smoothly without a hitch. It's kind of where the, the runtime comes in. You just have to end it. Yeah. So next episode is Landing at Rain Point. It's directed by Brian Kalen O'Connell. And this arc is written by Brian Larson and Drew Z. Greenberg. Continuing directly off the previous episode, they take the information of the new joint factory. And the Republic dispatches a second large-scale invasion of Geonosis, led by Kiyodi Mundi, Obi-Wan Kenobi, and Anakin. And Ahsoka's along, too. And this episode is just amazing. One of my favorites in the entire series. This arc is amazing to me. Yeah. But this episode in particular is just full-scale war on a scale we haven't seen before. The multiple, the multiple layers of battle we see going on, where they, they come in on the... On the um, the landing craft, and instantly we realize this is dangerous. You know, where you have the clone, like, ah, these joys can't hit anything. And it, <laughs> the ship is instantly blown up. And you see, like, the guy hanging off the edge and flying away. And it's all done in this one fluid shot. They're coming in for the landing, and all of them get shot down at various points. You know, there was planned to be a three prong attack, but each person is shot down in a different spot. And, you know, s- some of them can't move at all. Some of them keep moving. Some of them are, like, you know, being overrun. And just like nothing, they had this careful plan, and nothing is going according to plan. And, and each person is like, just trying to f- each uh, you know party of troops is just trying to, you know, to to fight to do what they can to survive for another minute to hopefully you know claw something out of this co- complete catastrophe. It really it feels like a real war. Like they have a plan, nothing goes according to plan, and each you know each each battalion is on its own. You know, fighting for their lives while trying to move toward an objective so that the other group can do what they need to do. Again, this show is just so good at, like, clearly elaborating on what every party is doing at every point. Like, there are clear goals and objectives, and it all makes sense from, like, a tactical viewpoint. Um, One of the things that I just love about this episode is how quickly it makes me feel like I'm back in Attack of the Clones. It's incredible because it is just like this kid's TV, uh, this kid's animated TV show. And I'm watching it and I'm getting the same feelings that I got during the invasion in the film. Like because of the cinematography. And at this point, you know, I'm super, I'm, I'm more invested in the clones and this, this war at this point than I was in Attack of the Clones. And so being able to actually be there with Rex and with Cody or Rex, yeah, yeah, with Rex and Cody and, uh, seeing, I love that the heroes get shot down here too, you know, because mm-hmm. it feels like it's always that coincidence where, okay, the Jedi got through, but here everybody is shot down in this invasion and everybody is fighting for survival and Obi-Wan barely makes it. You know, they, they get to him and he's unconscious next to the one clone who's still alive. Mm-hmm. Obi-Wan and Kiyoti Mundi are injured, but just everyone has to keep fighting because like either that or you die. Like you, it's not only like fight and hold your ground. It's like you might be outnumbered and in no condition to fight, but you have to fight and keep moving forward to 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 take out this next objective, or you will die, and everyone else will die. Yeah, and I love the all the different historical influences they like they use in this battle. Like you have where um Obi Wan and his group 
or is like way ahead of everyone else. Like they're the ones who actually made it to their drop zone. But that means they're 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 far they're farther ahead and have no support. So they're being surrounded almost and almost destroyed. It's like a kind of the lost battalion in World War One. And then you have um like the, the dragon's teeth, uh, which are those like those metal structures that Kiyadi Bundy has to cut down so that the tanks can get through as he's going toward his objective. Those are like real things that uh, the Germans used, which are basically like concrete pillars they would create to stop tanks uh, during on the European front in World War II. And then the caves are like the, the Pacific front. You know, the, the Japanese are kind of like, they would like hide in the dark and just like swarm out and attack the Americans. And you have the flamethrowers and it, it just, it, it, I love how they they combine like three or four different aspects of of of, of military history all into this one giant battle, and it all feels cohesive. Yeah, I completely agree. You know, when you rely so much on history, you you avoid feeling, you know, too much like a movie cliche or a, a, you know cliches, and you're able to avoid mostly just style over substance where it's both it looks amazing and again it just it all makes sense uh and then just cool little things like the the clones that rescue obi-wan being waxer and Boyle. yeah good to see them again yeah it's cool to to actually latch on even beyond just cody and rex like latch on to different characters and see them pop up again because i don't think there's a lot of time they're even in it and i know that again we see and we'll see rookies later uh it's really cool to experience this with other characters you know because that's one of the things that make war movies um so entertaining so often is you you have these characters that we care about uh, and so to ground all this really cool action with these familiar faces is well obviously they're going to be familiar um but it's just it's really cool and this is really cool, cool wall covered in guns that uh Anakin, Ahsoka, and um, Rex have to take out. I love that after they plant the bombs, they just throw Rex off the wall and, get, and then jump off after we catch him. Uh, the stuff Rex has been through. And then you're finally at the end where they, I think I think it's Anakin and Ahsoka's group that goes and finally takes out the clone generator, not the clone generator, the shield generator. And you realize like all of this entire battle with the, so many levels of conflict it was all just to take out this one shield generator and the main battle is still right. is still ahead of them. Yeah. It's really, you almost feel like you got like three episodes worth of information in just this one, because it doesn't feel like any singular objective was shortchanged. And like, I feel like I watched full missions with full, like beginning, middle and ends. And what we saw start to finish was this huge multi-layered and complex uh, front all in 22 minutes. And again, I feel like there's so many different things we're going to say that it's going to get so repetitive over the series. But again, like the fact that they could tell something this like grand and epic in a 20, 20 something minute runtime is really impressive. Yeah. And at the end you have, uh, or you have Anakin and Ahsoka throughout the, um, the episode kind of keeping count and they're like bragging to each other about their, uh, about their, um, about their scores. And then, uh, QD money's like, 65 so what do i win and it's like oh well, uh, my undying respect and he's like oh that's all <laughs> yeah. yeah i i and again this is a, another thing that i've said a lot but like, i love how every every jedi master we've spent time with you see the traits in them where you're like i get why this is a jedi but they never feel like carbon copies mm-hmm. of each other every single one of them feel like they have their own distinct personalities uh and i really like uh, 
Master Mundi here. Uh, I I just love that he ends up winning. Like this guy that you get the impression is just kind of rolling his eyes at this childishness, and he's at the end, you know, because that's that's not a decision he made at the very end. You can't just decide, okay, I want to keep count. Like <laughs> he was keeping count with him like along the entire battle. Yeah. Um, yeah, he's he's a great character. And in fact, one last thing is uh, there's a quote uh, from Dave Filoni. He said, uh, "Giving Kiyodi Mundi an injury and having him keep pushing on tells you infin- infinitely more about his character than if he had destroyed a hundred drones on his own, a hundred battle droids on his own." And I, it feels like they're subtly trying to take jabs at the um, the two D animated series. You know, the, yeah, this that's, is like that's one, what I got. Like, this there. is one of our big complaints is that they felt invincible and it was kind of boring. And they literally said, like, you give these characters injuries and you make them, you know, you give all these obstacles and injuries and things that they have to fight through. It means so much more than just by making them powerful. Yeah, they're they're not Goku and this isn't Dragon Ball Z. Like, yeah, I mean, if we're living in a universe where bounty hunters like Cad Bane and Jango Fett can actually go toe to toe with them, you've got to make them feel real. And the show does such a good job at making them still feel like Jedi and using the force and doing all this cool stuff while still feeling very vulnerable throughout the war. Yes. Next episode is Weapons Factory. It's directed by uh, Giancarlo Volpe. Um, in this one, Luminara Induli and her Padawan Barris Ophi arrive to assist on the final assault in the factory. Ahsoka and Barris have to sneak in through the uh, catacombs and blow it up from the inside as Ana- Anakin and Luminara uh, provide a diversion at the front. Um, again, yeah, we, we we kept harping on this last season, but I really love seeing these different Master Padawan dynamics. And last season we got a great, you know, some great stuff between Ahsoka and Luminara, and now we see Luminara with her own Padawan, and it's pretty much what you'd expect. Like they have a very, you know, proper and, and respectable uh, Master Padawan uh, relationship where it's it's very clear who is in command, who is in the kind of the subservient position. And <laughs> they kind of uh, very intentionally play up Anakin and Ahsoka's more bickerish um, natures to kind of to have that kind of clash with each other. I, I love that moment where Barris introduces herself and kind of bows <laughs> and it's all for one. Ahsoka just kind of looks at her like, oh, okay. Yeah, and, you, and I think you kind of see... It's interesting how, like... In this one, Anakin is very hesitant to send Ahsoka off on this dangerous mission. But even though Luminara is far more controlling over Barris, she's also more willing to allow her to go off on her own. Like, like she, like she's more of the mind that you know I've trained her and I've prepared her, and she has trained for this one mission. So yeah, she can go. That's fine. But Anakin, even though Anakin has has definitely equipped Ahsoka. She's a very, she's a very skilled warrior. He's still kind of what he wants to be there for her. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's that personality trait of him of, of wanting, you know, he didn't want Padme to go and do that. He doesn't want her to go and do this. Um, very, very protective of, of everything. Mm-hmm. And you see, it's interesting how like, despite the fact that he's overprotective, he has given Ahsoka a sense of, of independence and the, the the ability to improvise that this very close intertwined relationship that um Barris and Luminara had just doesn't allow her like as soon as like once the plan once a uh, Barris's plan falls apart you know she's like she doesn't like 
like melt into a quivering mess. But she, you know, she she doesn't know what to do anymore. She she doesn't have that ability to improvise and you know create the plan on the fly that Ahsoka has because she's been, she because Anakin has been so loose with how he trained her. You know, he he would he he forced her to, you know, come up with the plans on on the fly on her own sometimes. And now she you know she's able to do that despite someone who's who may have been far better prepared to start with. It just can't do that. It's a different mindset that they don't have. Yeah, and you know, it's cool seeing those different master Padawan uh, dynamics and relationships. But it's also cool to see different Padawans like their worlds colliding. It's almost like like when two people take the same class and then they talk about their experience, and it's like, wow, your professor was so overbearing. Like we we had our grades curved and all these. It's you know, it's these two people who are in similar situations. Um, but have completely different experiences. And I don't know if we've ever really had in all of Star Wars, like these Padawans kind of a way and give it, given their own mission. I think, yeah, obviously this would be the first time to see that. Um, and so it's one thing to like highlight the difference in masters between seeing this dynamic that this person has with their Padawan. And it's another to put the Padawans together and see how they handle themselves independently. And you, you really do see, the traits of each master, mm-hmm. like just completely on full display in moments like yeah. that when they're yeah. on their own. And again, Ahsoka proving why she's the best, uh, you know, chooses to sacrifice herself and blow up the factory while she's still inside. And that sequence is really powerful. Like, you know, she's talking to Anakin and he's like panicking and then it explodes and the kind of, the, it's a really powerful explosion, but the music kind of just drowns it out as you see the whole thing collapsing and Anakin like going crazy. It's really well done. Yeah, I'm glad I was an adult when I watched this because <laughs> I wouldn't have been ready for this as a kid. I would have become far too attached to Ahsoka and like they put her in stuff like that all the time where I'd just be having heart attack after heart attack. And then you have another, I think probably the best part about these different Master Padawans is when they're together and Anakin's just like going crazy. We have to go in, we have to, we have to try and find them. But like, you know, chances are they're dead and Luminar is like, they're dead. It's, it, I, you know, I will mourn her, but I'm gonna have to move on. And Anakin's just like, no, he he refuses to ex- even accept the idea of death. It's, it's not like, oh, they might be alive. We have to see them. It, it, for him. It's like she cannot be dead because that that would be too hard for me to accept. And he you know he would have been the same even if she was really dead. Turns out she wasn't. And it's interesting because like it's it, that attitude is what drove Anakin to the dark side. It was his inability to you know even accept the possibility of letting go. And Luminar is, is more cold and pragmatic about it to where if it happens, she will let go. She doesn't allow herself to become that attached. However, it, it is Anakin's love for life that ends up saving Barriss and Ahsoka. But it's also what drove him to the dark side. I, I love how it, it, it gives you both sides of the coin, showing you kind of the pros and cons of each side and not giving you an answer. I was about to say, I love the nuance. And it's like throughout the series and throughout just the scene in particular where, you know, at, at the end, um, when Annie, like, you know, the, the, they've got them out of the rubble and everything's going okay. And you have Luminar who's still kind of like justifying herself. And I can't tell if, the, if this episode is wanting us to really agree with her in that moment or not, because to and maybe it's again doing what you said, where it's like, it's not really saying agree with this person or that person. It's just giving you two different angles. But, you know, when you have her saying, I was prepared to let go, 
maybe it's just my personality trait, but in that moment, I'm just thinking like, no, no, it was beyond, you weren't just letting like, well, like you said, it's, it's, you got that cold, pragmatic way of looking at things that yes, keeps you away from the dark side. But I feel like it's almost encouraging letting go and complete and total lack of attachment. I don't think she's not genuine in that moment, but just her justification of not not really going all in with him to help. But but she, I, I love that she does when she realizes that they are alive. She goes she goes right alongside Anakin. Like the, the, they could, there's so many steps along the way where they could have made her unlikable and made you hate her, but they don't allow that. Yeah, and, th- and that's why I I think she's I think she's genuine. It's just it, it's weird, not weird. I mean, I guess it's completely in line with everything they've said about the order. It does, I guess, just highlight that the difference in how Anakin viewed. I feel like, man, again, they should have called Anakin's fall like way ahead of time, because there's moments like this where he's doing things that kind of fly in the face of their tenants. Well, the, the Jedi Council was probably just feeling guilty about all the things they were doing that were flying in the face of their tenants as well. <laughs> That's true. Um, so next episode is Legacy of Terror. It's directed by Stuart Lee and written. Um, and this one has an additional writer, um, Eogen Mahoney. In this one, Luminara pursues Poggle the Lesser across the desert. And I'm always a little confused as to why she went out kind of almost by herself. Like you're on a hostile planet. At least, you know, at least take more than five clones, but okay. <laughs> and so she disappears and then Obi-Wan and Anakin have to fight, go after her. And they follow her to caves underneath a Genosan temple where they run into zombies. Oh my gosh. Who would have thought that we would have seen that in Star Wars? Yeah. <laughs> and I like that this episode reminds us that sandstorms are very, very dangerous. So yeah, the, the temple is really creepy. I love kind of, it has a kind of like an Egyptian look and the Genosian costumes are more Egyptian. But just it, the whole thing is so spooky. Even, even before we run into the crazy zombie bugs. Just like, this episode does a really great job of, you know, building up that atmosphere and mystery. And I like how no one really knows how Genosan culture even works. Like there may like legend says there might be a queen. Really? We don't really know. It's just these crazy bugs over here. No one's really even discovered what's going on. Yeah. I, I think one of my favorite things about this episode is just the aesthetic and atmosphere to me this, this time. And maybe it's just because like the queen herself and her design reminded me so much of it, but I really got like a Guillermo del Toro vibe with this entire episode. Um, like if, if if you've seen Pan's Labyrinth, you know you you've got the that that creature like that head crest thing on him very much reminded me of the queen here. Um, but or maybe that was a I can't remember if that's Pan's Labyrinth or if that's one of the Hellboys, but. Oh, it's a, it's a Hellboy. It, oh, yeah, that, that Angel of Death thing. Yeah, yeah, that's it. I re- that it really reminded me of that. But even you know some of the weird out there moments of Pan's Labyrinth, I just felt like that really creepy but very big kind of design. Like it's not subtle at all. You, with her, you've got that long. So is that a, a cape or is that part of her? The body, like her body. I always think it's a cape at first, and then <laughs> the body's revealed, and then. I still, for some reason, have it. The idea yeah, that it it's like the alien queen. Yeah, it it looks so creepy, and this whole episode, like so much of it, just takes place in the tunnels, and so the lighting is always dark, and the atmosphere is very oppressive, and 
it's cool because it's kind of like it's caught right in the middle of an arc but it's still and it makes it it's continuing on plot points and it's setting up future plot points but it still feels very uniquely its own thing yeah there's the zombie i mean the the chinosins are already really creepy <laughs> but when they're coming at you dead-eyed like he like shoot puts a, a hole like a literal hole through things head but the head just kind of comes back up and they keep coming and they're really scary because like they're like dragging clone troopers down these dark caves and if anyone gets separated they're, they're dead it, it, it really this one has like a like even uh, the whole series has a great way of you know convincing us that there's actual a threat but this one like even goes above and beyond in that <laughs> and, and then i love at the end when um like you know obi-wan he's still the detective when they when they find out Luminara and the queen has got to put the the brain bug in he's like what do you think look on the nose of the ear and anakin's like what what, what are you doing and he's like whatever fine probably the nose <laughs> it's like it, it reminds me of like his demeanor and um in the in dooku captured where anakin's just running around on this like fleeing from a giant goodark <laughs> and obi-wan's just kind of like nonchalantly joking with him the entire time and can't help but feel like that was the exact same demeanor he had when he he fell into that pist of goondarks that he mentioned in uh, Attack of the Clones, where it's just, I'm not even going to worry. I think we even brought it up in one of the very first episodes with the the hidden enemy. Whenever they they take on Ventress, mm-hmm. he's just, he's going to do whatever he has to do, you know, It's and he'll, he'll probably joke while he's doing it. I just, I love his character. Yeah. Fun fact, it's uh, the clone, the clone actor, D. Bradley Baker, who voices the, the, uh, Genos and Queen Karina. Huh. And I, I like how at, in the end when they escape, the whole thing exp- kind of blows up and collapses back into legend. It feels a lot like you're watching Indiana Jones or The Mummy or something. Next episode is Brain Invaders, directed by Stuart Lee with the additional writer uh, Andrew Kreisberg. Uh, this one you have Barris, Ophi, and Ahsoka are assigned to accompany a medical supply ship heading to but the crew is taken over by brain invaders and they are forced to fight for their lives. This whole arc is really crazy. Like the first one is like this classic noirish uh, romantic espionage thing. Second one is full on war. Third one is like straight horror. Fourth one is like sci-fi horror. They're all one connected arc, but each one is a completely distinct genre and style. Yeah, and you know, like I said, the last one kind of gave me... Uh del toro vibes this one at some moments i feel like did they bring on ridley scott as a consultant <laughs> because there are moments where i just getting major like alien and prometheus vibes um the scene in particular uh and i think it's a combination of just the way it's shot and the music but whenever he comes in he like lays out all the eggs and the the worms come out and it's it's not a quick thing it's not like we see his eyes and we see the egg and then we cut like we it's it's a very much like a Ridley Scott thing to do. We just dwell on that scene, and there's no dialogue, and we watch the eggs hatch. We watch them crawl. Like the the camera pulls out, we see everybody sit up in unison. It's such a creepy scene, and it lasts long enough to to really have this spooky atmosphere. And I love like the the subtle creaking noises as they kind of get stand up after they've been taken over. And there's, there's a brief conversation between Ahsoka and Barris where Barris is becoming worried that maybe the uh, Jedi are losing their ideals and be, by becoming warriors and tools of the Republic rather than, you know, keepers of the peace. And that might be important later. Hmm. Even beyond just like that good bit of foreshadowing, 
I like that conversation a lot, you know, where they talk about like, what do we do? You know, I, we have this ideal that, you know, we, we are keepers of these, we're not warriors, we're not warriors. And yet that's just become so intrinsically, intrinsically linked with what they do now that now we have these Padawans who don't even know, like, cause you know, they've became Padawans in the midst of a war. It's like, they don't even know what Jedi life looks like outside of it and you almost get the feeling that even the masters are kind of losing touch on on what we are outside of war yeah like i i think barris is a little bit older but ahsoka she became a padawan at long after the war had started like i, I think barris probably had been a padawan a little before because she seems to feel the difference but for ahsoka this is what jedi life is yeah, so this episode is pretty much invasion of the body snatches you have a lot of that theme of paranoia and distrust like it's not about outright terror it's just it's more that kind of creeping terror like you see in the the thing where you don't can you you don't know who to trust you don't know who your friends are they look like you but they're not like you um it it always bothered me that the fact that they just go ahead and kill the clones like these are the you know these people you know all their names you fought alongside them and you know you know for a fact that they are not this is not this is not them and like she she, like she refuses later on to kill barris but she's the, the completely okay killer. well then again it was barrett uh, did ahsoka kill a clone um no i Might think it barris. was uh, barris is he, but, <laughs> we, we know things about barris don't we so i know who you are but i it still bothered me in that ahsoka wasn't disturbed yeah she's just like trap would have never have done that like yeah well trap's got a hole in his chest are you gonna be sad at all especially considering like just the remorse she showed whenever she lost her own crew like you definitely get the sense that she like anakin like really grow attached to her fellow soldiers and warriors uh so that always that scene always feels a bit weird when it's just like huh that's weird this isn't like him he's dead oh well but some of the action in this episode though uh, is really cool, and there's just one moment before we get like towards the resolution that I want to talk about. Uh, whenever they first realize, whenever the clones first come in and start attacking them, the way Ahsoka jumps into the air and like pulls the table over as a cover, like while upside down in the like mid jump, yeah. is so cool. And I remember that's another moment where like, man, every episode they're just making me like her more and more. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was just a really cool animation the way. It was just this one long fluid movement. And it kind of shows that she, more than Barris, is kind of ready for the situation where Barris just kind of has to wait for Ahsoka to do it and hide behind her. But Ahsoka's always on her toes, ready for things like that. Yeah, and, and I love when they finally contact Anakin and they have to go they go and try and interrogate Poggle. He won't talk. And then Anakin sneaks back in and force chokes Poggle till he um, tells him. And you have the Imperial March playing in the background as he's torture as he's like torturing him and then he walks out like oh yeah i found out what it is <laughs> that's like man that was a good bit of a foreshadow one of the things that I, I loved about that scene was anakin throughout the show sometimes feels almost more together than he is in the movies even revenge of the sith you know which takes place afterwards um but here you know you definitely have it where i feel like if you were to try to stop him dur- doing that and you told him you know this is wrong during that moment, he'd be like, I know and I don't care. And he would have kept doing it. Because yeah, he is a total pragmatist. He always has been. It's just that he, you know, he's, he's, he's been fighting for the good side and he's trying to save life. And that's, that's his excuse. He's going to save Ahsoka. 
and he will do anything and everything to save the people he cares about. So most of the time that will stay within the bounds of what is good and right, because he, he wants to save people good, more power to him. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's that it's the pragmatism un that underlies it all. And the, the total lack of any intrinsic morality, like where he, you know, he, he's never cared a thing about the Jedi code. He's always just been in it to save, just, just to protect people. So as soon as, as soon as, doing evil becomes more um you know more conducive just to what he to saving the lives he wants to save bring it on yeah and it was cool i mean he just goes straight into force choking like right off the bat and we that's such a cool scene that when we get the music i think isn't that the first time we hear it in the show uh, i i don't know i wouldn't be surprised if we heard it some other time but yeah, i'm not sure and i i one last thing i'd really love how after after uh Ahsoka opens up all the, the like the AC, the AC vents. I love how the cold is visualized. Like you, you see, everything is covered in frost, and like the, you have the the wafting uh, mist, and like she, and the, the 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 animation they have covering her like as she's shivering. It's really effective. Like I feel cold and kind of want to bundle up as I'm watching this episode. Yeah, and, you know when when they finally find her and they find her in that state, you almost can't. You just feel sorry for her, like. Everything she's gone through, um, and at this point, it's like the amount of times she has been willing to like sacrifice herself or put herself in increased danger uh, for like the moral good. Um, yeah, I think it, it. I is it? I can't remember when like the collective like Star Wars fans really started to come around to her, but I feel like it. It must have been somewhere around this point. Okay, if if you're not on board with Ahsoka by now, you're. I have I have no hope for you here. You're lost. Yeah. She, at this point, she is just a fantastic character. And the last thing that I, I want to point out before uh, before we moved on to the next episode was, I know we, we say it all the time, like this is a kids show, but sometimes man, it just I feel like it really pushes it, and which is like awesome for me who like <laughs> just takes it all in. But the moment where they hold the clone back against the <laughs> wall and they just force the worm like it feel to to me it feels like the more weird ritualistic portions of like the resident evil series it's just you've got this this group of people acting in unison it almost feels cultish but that whole scene and having him be totally conscious and like fighting it throughout the entirety it's just such an unnerving scene even as like a twenty-three-year-old watching a kids' show. I'm still like, oh, that's got to that's got to be all Lucas. Like, he knows what his who and what his audience is. Like we, like you saw, like later on when, when Disney took over with Rebels, they they definitely made it more of a kids' show. But this is Lucas knows that ninety percent of the viewing audience will be adults, so he's going to play to them. And it works. I mean, I I love every bit of it. Next episode is Grievous Intrigue by Giancarlo Volpe. Uh, this arc is by Druzy Greenberg and Brian Larson with Ben Edlund. In this one, Grievous captures Jedi Master Eeth Koth, um, and Obi-Wan, Anakin, and Adigalia go to rescue him over the planet uh, Salukamai? Something. So this one is pretty much like a, just completely action-driven, you know, very simple premise. It's, it's kind of... I think This one seems like the... Uh, it's very action driven. There's not a lot of plot, not a lot of like thematic stuff to discuss, but I think it's quite fun. <laughs> it's crazy. Like Grievous literally sends a, a, a hologram message 
to the uh, to the Jedi Temple. Like no demands, no nothing. He's just gonna taunt them and tell them that I've kidnapped this guy and I'm gonna torture him. But uh, Koth is able to send a message with his hands, which kind of makes Grievous look sort of stupid. <laughs> yeah, but I love because that's that's completely in line with the kind of mistake he would make. Like you know, if he were in the moment and he was surrounded by them, like physically, he would he would be out of there. But like whenever he's separated by holograms, he's gonna do whatever he can take, like whatever he can to to kind of brag about himself and, and show off. Mm-hmm. And this really, this episode really does highlight just what kind of character he is. Like when he first breaks into the bridge, um, where Koth and the, uh, the clones are like, he cuts it himself and he, he stands in the, um, in the doorway and taunts them, but it's, but then he'll step back and allow the commander Joyce to come in and kill all the clones. And, uh, you know, wear down Koth, and then after all the commander droids are killed, he'll send in his his uh, guard droids before he engages himself. Like he will, he will not fight unless he thinks he can win. Like he he always always stacks the deck in his favor before he'll even enter a fight. Uh, it looks cool. There's a bunch of cool fights in this one. The the fight between Obi Wan and Grievous himself to me is like just as cool, if not maybe even a little cooler than the one in the movie where. You've got Grievous like pulling all four of his limbs down at one time with all four lightsabers coming down at Obi-Wan. And just since his, his arms are all going all over the place, you can just see them visually cutting through everything. Yeah. But just I think that that whole fight is really cool. Like you see Obi-Wan's resourcefulness where he knows he's probably in trouble, but he's able to, he's, he, he has his own kind of tool set where he's taunting Grievous, trying to get him to make a mistake and, and you know he and you know kind of using the terrain in his favor. Another way to see, I think, is where uh, you know the tactical droids taunting and uh, taunting about how he'll he'll electrocute Koth, uh, and so Anakin just cuts off his arm. And you have the whole fight where the droids <laughs> tra- tra- crawling across the floor trying to get his arm. He keeps being kicked around. I love the moment when he actually gets it and <laughs> realizes he doesn't have the <laughs> other hand to push it. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it, not, not a lot happens here. Just pretty much all action, and they they escape and take a time as the as the uh, ship explodes. And there's that one moment where they have Anakin and Obi Wan have to uh, pretty much decide who's going to like try to cut him off and who's going to help. I forget what's what's the the female Jedi Master's name. Adi Adi Galia. That's right. Um, it feels a bit out of character for Anakin to volunteer himself as the one who like helps her out of it instead of running towards the action. But, but, but Obi-Wan again, like, seems to enjoy being the bait. <laughs> it's something he true. does he always, multiple times throughout the series. It's funny because he always, like, he see, he'll try to put off, like, he's annoyed by it, but it just feels like he thrives on it. Yeah. Uh, but I do like that Anakin is the one who doesn't engage with Grievous because, again, you know, they're, they're really going out of their way to keep him apart. Next episode is The Deserter, directed by Robert Dalva and written with an additional writer, Carl Ellsworth. In this one, Obi-Wan, Cody, and Rex pursue Grievous across the planet's surface. He escaped in the last episode. And while scouting, Rex is injured and forced to take shelter with a local farmer, who turns out to be a clone deserter uh, named Cut Laquane. And as uh, so Obi-Wan continues his pursuit, and then a group of damaged commander droids uh, land at the farmhouse. I really enjoy this one. Um, like it, it, it focuses most of its runtime on Rex uh, at the farmhouse, and there's one, one really cool scene. I, I it feels so 
sweet. It's like the, just the dinner scene with the clone and his wife and the kids at the table. It's like he realized just how martial this entire series is. Like this, this tiny like glimpse of like peace and domesticity is, is like the only one in the entire series. It just it feels so foreign, and I love you know the way where you see that Rex is has to kind of come to face with the life he's chosen to follow, and the fact that he probably he will probably never have this, and yet he still allows himself to appreciate it in the moment. Yeah, and I like the way they have uh, cut play that scene, where I feel like I've seen this kind of scene before. Where you know, you have the kids and you're like, yeah, you've always taught us always help everyone. Is like, yeah, and then you almost expect him to kind of like glance over to the other guy, almost as if he's using them to be like, come on, look, look what I, you wouldn't take this from me. But it, he feels so genuine and he doesn't, whether he's afraid he's going to be taken away or not, he's, he's completely hospitable and it all feels very sincere. Yeah, he's just, a, he's just um, a great dad too. Yeah. You know, and I, I love the line. He's like, you know, you can call me deserter, like, but I'm not a coward. I would, you know, I would do everything you're willing to do for the Republic. I'm willing to do for my family. So it it, it was nothing about like me fleeing a war. Yeah, he, he's not like a cynic or a traitor. It's just, you know, he fought. He, he did his time. He almost died. And then he realized, you know, if I die, no one's going to mourn for me. You know, no one's going to come for my body. It's just that's it. And he, he decided he wanted to he wanted to find something that he thought was worth worth living for like he he got to the place where he just didn't see me in the clone war it's not it's not like he's fighting against it he's not gonna war against their whole he's like yeah that's not what i want to do i want to do this he's not there to, to be an antagonist against rex he's just a guy who's chosen a different way of life and i love that you know we see he's still a warrior and he will still fight to protect his family. And I love that entire sequence at the end where they're defending the farmhouse. Um, have you seen LA, LA Confidential? Yes, that's what that reminded me of. Yes. It's like you know, he's jumping around into various entry points and shooting people here, then moving around. It's, it's, a, it's a really well put together sequence. Um, and I love that they, like, he's cycling through various weapons using different tactics. And you know he has, he has a Rex upstairs as the last line of defense. So they kind of save each other's lives. This is a really uh, tight little sequence. Um, Talking about like the the questions that it, it raises, like the the desire for independence with clones. It's cool, you know. Like this is the second season now. Like both seasons have have brought this up now at this point. Um, and you know, it, it was easier on Rex the first time because he was a traitor. You know, I mean, he yeah. he may have actually brought up you know solid points. But it's so easy to dismiss, like, it's, it's easy to throw the baby out with the bathwater there because it's like, well, I don't have to listen to a word of what he said anyways. He just killed our brothers. And here, just every, because of how sincere this guy is. And he's a good man who saved his life. Yeah, you have to give pause and think, oh, okay, so maybe there is credibility to this argument here. Um, and it's just cool to see Rex see this for the second time and then actually be forced to try to reckon with the argument instead of given the opportunity of just easily dismissing it. Mm -hmm. There were a lot of other cool things about this too. Like seeing, I, I forget the name of the creature, but like the, the rhinoceros type alien from attack of the clones, seeing him yeah. again was cool. And um, seeing space chess again. Uh, also I had a, a question 
So with are, are we supposed to believe that those are his biological kids? Yeah, they're like these mutant half Twi'lek half human things. So yeah. The, I think so one of my only issues here is that I feel like that kind of messes with the continuity because I believe there's, there's only supposed to be three years between Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith. And mm. they definitely seem older than three years old. Well, them to be that kids. <laughs> they grow up so freaking fast. <laughs> That'll explain it. So next episode is Lightsaber Lost. It is directed by Giancarlo Volpe and written by Druzy Greenberg. In this one, while investigating an arms dealer in Coruscant's underworld, Ahsoka's lightsaber is pickpocketed and unwilling to admit this to Anakin, she seeks the help of elderly master Tara Sanub to help her in tracking it down. And I just think the opening of this one's really fun. Where you, you have them coming up to this, you know, this seedy underworld uh, bar, and Anakin just kind of walks in, and we stay outside with Ahsoka, and you know, a couple seconds later, the whole party runs out. Yep. I also like... Going to places like that, it it gives you a very, you know, beginning of Attack of the Clones feeling whenever we actually got to see more areas of uh, Coruscant. Yeah, it's it's always great to see that just the underworld because it, it's so different. You know, Coruscant has always been, you know, this very elegant world, you know, where the, the elites are all gathered together, you know, having nice parties in their opulent uh, penthouses. And then when we when we go down to this, it's, it's just like we're stepping into a completely different planet. Like the uh, this, the the really seedy. I love the seedy motels they have here, like with all the, just the grungy dirt all over the walls and posters and the advertisements. It, it it's just a great look. Yeah, it almost makes me want like a full noir film taking place in Coruscant. Yeah, we see we really see that Ahsoka is still a kid. You know, she's she doesn't want to admit to Anakin after, after you know, he's repeated Obi Wan's line. You know, this weapon is your life to her so many times. Losing it, you know, just like anyone, she doesn't she doesn't want to admit it to Anakin. So she's gonna try and find someone else to help her. Master Sanub is just awesome. <laughs> so you're saying there's something fishy about him? <laughs> just. <laughs> A camel saying dad jokes, and he's a Jedi. Just yes, I love this guy. Yeah, and again, like I feel like you know, there are so many different kinds of characters that this show has, um, and every now and then they'll they'll not work out. But a lot of the time, it's like this character really could have been annoying. Yeah, and he only has one speaking one, one speaking role in the entire in the entire series, which is this episode, and he's always stood out to me. You know, he's a very memorable character, even though he has such a tiny presence in the overall history of the show. And I like, you know, again, whenever you put Padawans with different masters and things like that, um, you're able to learn more about just the differences in teachings and things like that. And you see just it like through this situation, you almost learn more about Anakin as well here, even though he's barely in it, which is just the fact that, you know, like you said, she's she's probably heard the whole, you know, this lightsaber is your life. She's had certain things stress over, like, just so often. And evidently, you know, so often enough that she's too embarrassed to even admit it, and she goes and seeks help outside, or not outside the order, but just help outside of her master. And so whenever he's actually having her slow down, it's like, yeah, this is, you know, this almost is completely new for her. Like, considering she went from being, like, or her first day as a Padawan was to Anakin, you know, she's never really had the opportunity to learn these kind of lessons from uh, from people like Master Sanube. 
Yeah, and I think that's why she turned out so well. Because <laughs> if she had just been Atticus Padawan the whole time, she definitely would have gone to the dark side. But we, you know, we get her with, you know, Luminara, with Plo Koon, um, uh, Obi-Wan, just uh, Sanub. We see her kind of learning from all these different various people in Jedi. And I think that's why she turns out su such a well-rounded character, because she has so many various great, you know, great influences. And you almost think... Like, would it wouldn't it be so much? Wouldn't you end up with much stronger Jedi if you actually did this? As a rather than having them stuck with one guy for however many years they're Padawan, you know, pass them around, let, let them learn from different various masters. They have each one's strengths and weaknesses, and, and you'll get a more well-rounded education rather than sticking them with some crazy like Anakin and and you know that that, that could have been a disaster. Yeah, for as much as I love this show, you know you. You do think it's kind of weird where clearly, especially someone like Mace Windu, like they've got really, they're really suspicious sometimes of Anakin and then to just give him someone who's going to learn like everything she knows from him. It's kind of asking for trouble, but yeah, I love that Asanoob is just a, you know, a great detective. Like he, he, he's able to follow the leads, but you know, he's constantly having to hold Ahsoka back from, you know, doing something stupid and telling her you know to calm down like when she goes to the, the hotel like he, he teaches you, you you are able to actually sense the fear of the person you're hunting if you just you know quiet your mind that's something she would never have learned in a million years from anakin yeah he would have just gone and kicked in every door until he found the person he wanted yeah and what i like this is where i feel like dynamics like this usually fall flat which is the person that we're following is actually doing the right thing and they're just like oh, you young people are just too fast you need to sit down and like a lot of times they're just unhelpful, but here, you know, he's not just saying, you know, quiet your mind, you're, you're just too busy, but he's saying like, no, there's a reason, you know, quiet your mind, it will help you in this moment beyond just like being more laid back, but you will actually be able to, you know, to sense the fear. Um, and he, even beyond that, like there's just multiple moments throughout the episode where he, he is actually the one following the leads. Um, so, yeah, he's, he's just a really fun and useful character throughout the entire episode. Yeah, it's kind of like the, the turtle and the hare kind of thing. Yes, yeah, so they, they they come up, they find the person who has sold the lightsaber, but he's dead. And there's this uh, woman in there who's saying that he was murdered and she was in hiding. And Ahsoka finds a Torellian Django jumper, um, which is just a cool name. Very creepy and, design, too. Yeah, and I love that, you know, she chases her... Way, all the way across the street, just like jumping across every everything that can be jumped on, and then, like I love the sequence where they're running across the signs and she's slashing them with the lightsaber. She goes across, and Ahsoka's like trying to scramble over them as they're falling. It kind of feels like a like a, some kind of uh, video game or something, but it's fun. Yeah, it very much felt like a George Lucas chase to me. Yeah, and that, back at the hotel, you have uh, Sanub obviously sees something is wrong. So I love how I love how he just manipulates the situation to make the other the, the woman do exactly what he wants by putting the tracker on her and kind of slowly starting to accuse her till she panics and runs and he'll just follow her and it's like such an, an above reproach way to like go about it too where he i feel like he's very you know calm and cool and by the books but he's able to get the job done nonetheless just through his own wits see so, you know, they, they uh, catch up with him on the train and then Ahsoka again runs off ahead. And I love, man, when, when they finally get to the end and 
the door opens and he's just standing there and he pulls his lightsaber out of his cane and disarms her with one move and then throws her against the wall. It's like, yeah, you're a total badass. I absolutely love you. Yeah. One mild complaint with this episode is at the end when they go to, uh, when he takes her to the young Padawans and she tells her to, you know, pass on what you have learned. And which is a cool throwback though. Which is great. Which is a wonderful idea, you know, allowing her, giving her a chance to, to you know, have a little teaching moment. But what she says is, oh, th- this lightsaber is your life. Like, that, that's not really what you learned this episode. It, it's, it's like moments like this where you, the, the fact that it's a kid's show shines through. And you, they, they were doesn't seem like they were terribly thoughtful about, like, what was the theme of this episode? It was, you know, the, you know, the quieting your mind, looking ahead. Don't always be Anakin, in other words. And... Going back to that cliche is just kind of like, come on, you, you just think about what you're saying. Yeah. It doesn't feel like it's, well, I mean, pretty much just what you said. It's not the lesson learned because I'm sure they're hearing that from more than just Ahsoka, you know. So it doesn't make too much sense to bring on a Padawan who's just going to reiterate what seems to be a mantra for the Jedi anyways. Next episode is The Mandalore, plot directed by Kyle Dunleavy uh, and written by Melinda Sue and Drew Z. Greenberg. In this one, Obi-Wan travels to Mandalore to investigate um, Man- Mandalorian attacks on the Republic, and he is met by an old friend, Duchess Satine, and together they investigate a, Mar- they investigate a Mandalorian terrorist group, Death Watch. Which, if you want to Gain the will of the people. That's probably not the best name, but it's cool. <laughs> yeah, um, I I just love the design of the Mandalorian planet. Like the 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 planet surface is just like white desert. It was I guess it was supposedly destroyed in a war or something. So all all life is living under these like gla- giant glass dome cities. And once you get inside, everything is like perfectly symmetrical and made out of this blue glass. Yeah, and I'm always impressed whenever we can have a city that just looks almost completely unique and distinct just because, you know, at this point we've between fantasy and sci-fi, we've just seen like every kind of giant, you know, metropolitan area imaginable. And so to get under there and it almost looks like, you know, mining and coming across like crystal formations. Yeah. And this is something that a lot of people got mad at. Apparently in the uh, EU canon, the Mandalorians at this time would have still been, you know, a fiercely warlike people. Um, and, and in the new canon, they were essentially they were that crazy warlike people who went to war with the Jedi, but it destroyed them, like the, it wiped out their planet. And sometime along the way, I'm guessing this this had to have happened before Satine. Um, they decided to, you know, this 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 warlike culture isn't working for us, so we're going to tr- go to the opposite extreme and be pacifists. And be completely neutral in this in this war, and so you have Satine, who's I think just a fascinating character. So like she's she you know, she sees the flaws of the past, the fact that being completely crazy and warlike destroyed her people, destroyed her planet. So she, her her solution is now to go to the the opposite extreme, which is extreme pacifism, which you no, know, it's not the worst idea. Like, it, it, okay, I wouldn't call it extreme pacifism because you know she has armed guards and she will fight if if a situation arises. But she wants her government to be completely to be completely pacifistic and not get involved in any war. Um, but she's also very willfully ignorant of her of her own culture and doesn't even allow herself to think that there might be other people on her planet that don't share her ideals. Like even in the face of obvious 
like terrorism. Like we, we, we see a terrorist attack with civilian casualties. And, and even in the face of this obvious, these obvious threats and the fact that her people are not 100% behind her, she kind of just has to hunker down and hide in that. Like, no, no we're, we're pacifists now. This is what we are. We have to be this like, as if somehow acknowledging a threat. Uh, I don't know. We'll make, we'll make it more real than it already is or something, but it's, it's really interesting to see how like she's like I love how they don't make her useless. Like when when action comes, like if she has to go save Obi Wan or later on in a in the um Voyage of Temptation, where she's like back to back with Obi Wan with a blaster, you like she is perfectly capable. They, they don't make her unlikable. Like she's a, a moral principled person, but they still are able to give her these real flaws. And I think it's just a, it makes for a very dynamic and interesting character. Yeah, the very first time I watched this, I was kind of annoyed by her character, you know, but finishing this arc and then seeing her later in the series, I think she's a really nuanced character. And some of the things that I, I found annoying, I found like they were very intentional about and there's reasons you have all of this. And um, it, yeah, I, I think it, it's so weird considering the kind of person Obi-Wan is and the kind of person she is. And I mean, obviously that's intentional because of how polar opposite they are. But uh, their interactions in this episode, uh, to me, are a lot of fun. Yeah. Where, like, especially... We'll have to stand and fight. Or in your case, just stand. (laughs) Yeah. Like, to get... You know, because we hear, like, the sass from him to Anakin all the time. But there's almost, like, a different layer to that here. Um, But just talking about her, I I do agree. Like, on rewatches, I actually find myself liking her as a character a lot more than I did. And then just talking about this plot, again, you know, I, I'll, I'll say it one more time. Like, this is a kid's show and we just saw, we're, we're not even, it'd be one thing to just refer to acts of terrorism, but we we saw a terrorist attack in this show. And then the guy um, jumps off a bridge. <laughs> yeah, and that's that's the part that really, like, I was sh- shocked watching. Because you even hear, like, the splatter almost. Like, the, gl- the glass cracked around him. Yeah, like, it's this is very, very brutal. Um one of the things that I liked a lot about this episode, just beyond the characters, is the the political intrigue here feels like like it's it's well thought out. And one of the reasons that I, I thought that um you know this this kind of reform for Mandalorian culture must have happened before her is she she feels like she's speaking on behalf of like at something like this principle that at this point has been well founded, you know and you know, you can say maybe it's an arrogant assumption, but she's she's making the assumption, you know, that this is just everybody at this point. Like this is who Mandalorians are. This isn't something that we've just we've just decided. Uh, and so to see a leader kind of have that mindset, and to see you know terrorist groups and all these machinations behind the scenes try to to undermine that uh, is just a really interesting premise. Oh yeah. And, and the, the, the overall arc over this series is really, really cool. It's where you have this terrorist group, death watch, who is uh, basically a group of radicals who wants to return Mandalore to, to its uh, warlike ways has to essentially create enough conflict within Mandalore so that the Republic has to send troops in, which will then destroy their, um, um, th- their status as a neutral system that is standing outside of the war, in which case you know, will bring war to them, which will make the people hopefully then see the uh, it- it- see the republic troops as oppressors, and then they'll rise up and hopefully return to their warlike ways. It's, it's like a multi-layered political plan, 
And so they have to discredit um, Satine and her her pacifism, and they have to cause constant conflict in within Mandalore, and ho- to hopefully it force the Republic to send troops in. It's just really, and it's actually a really smart plan, and it's well, it's really well executed throughout. And I just love going through all this crazy political intrigue. Yeah, and this is like the second time at this point that the idea of Republic occupation being something like like looking at that in a negative light like you know we saw that in the um the ryloth arc well you know with with his line you know how soon after the occupation will it be before we're fighting you and so you know that's that's very real world conversations you know yeah um and so to have it here in a kid's show no less and again it's it's handled in a way where I do think, you know, kids can kind of follow it and they understand based on the wording, but it still manages to not sound like super watered down. Um, like I said, it's, it's very multi-layered. Their plan completely makes sense. Um, so, yeah, it's cool. And it also, I think, uh, I think it adds to the whole level of distrust that we see even in the films, you know, especially surrounding the Jedi. Because at this point, the Jedi and the Republic are almost synonymous. And that's kind of another point that the show keeps bringing up is, you know, where the Jedi want to be viewed as something outside of the Republic. We're not your warriors, we're peacekeepers, but that's kind of exactly who they've become. And so to keep seeing all these different planets view the Republic in a negative light because of this war, it adds credibility to the fact that there wouldn't be this huge outcry initially following something like order 66 yeah and and also in this episode we're introduced to our first mandalorian warriors which i love that they they are legitimate threats to the jedi they're kind of sort of like the bounty hunters they they have all these tricks and gadgets that can allow them to you know they've they had you know thousands of years of battling the jedi so they're quite good at it and yeah i I love the way they they fight together it's very very brutal and I, i just love how they film hand like martial arts and hand-to-hand combat in this show. Yeah. You know, they they never take the liberties that you'd think they would considering their animation. It feels like all of the physical stuff, all of the decisions they make in animation feel like the first question they ask is, would this look believable in live action? Um, and for the most part, all of these fights feel like they're real life, you know, choreographed. Um and I think especially like whenever Obi-Wan fights them uh, later on, it to me, it's intentionally, you know, reminiscent to his fight with Django. Um, and so it feels like things we've already seen in a, in a live action capacity. Although they make a point to say that Django, it wasn't a Mandalorian here, which I guess has been something that's been like hotly debated in fan culture for decades. One of the cool things that uh, the leader of Death Watch, Pre Vizsla, is voiced by John Favreau, and it's funny. Normally in Star Wars, the American accent is usually a sign of the good guys, but here, since all the Mandalorians have like a very posh British accent, when you have a guy coming on the screen with a, with a, this you know very clipped American accent, <laughs> you immediately like don't trust him. Yeah, and he's a really good voice actor here, and I guess that should come to no surprise considering you know, he's done extensive live action acting. But I love the way he plays Vizsla here where I feel like, you know, I almost wish they kind of eased up on some of the foreshadowing with this character because I think they really could have played him up as 
a bit more believable as a good guy initially because especially in in one line whenever obi-wan is talking to him and he says you know it seems that this could have been the work of uh the death watch and he just kind of looks down is like a worrisome prospect like it feels real i feel like he's putting on a, a good performance um both you know contextually in the show as well as just um favreau in the moment i think he's he brings a lot to this character and his voice is just so recognizable. Yeah. And I, I, I love the dark saber. It is such a like cool, but also kind of disturbing visual. This is just this black hole that kind of warps as you swing it. And it just, it never like, it looks unreal, like in the best possible way. It, it, like you can never, your mind can never fully accept what you're seeing. And it's kind of unnerving. Yeah, it's like it's it truly just looks like the absence of of anything there, like just in blade form, and it's so weird to look at. But especially in a fight, it's so cool the way it just moves around and like kind of leaves a visual trail behind it. Um, I love the design there. Um, next episode is Voyage of Temptation, directed by Brian Kalen O'Connell and written by Paul Dini and Henry Gilroy. In this one, Obi-Wan and Anakin are escorting Satine to Coruscant to plead her case for the neutrality of Mandalore, uh, but her ship is attacked by Death, uh, Death Watch Assassin, and all the while, Obi-Wan and Satine's past relationship uh, begins to catch up with them. And just to start off with, you know, <laughs> I just love how Obi-Wan and Satine are just really getting super snarky with each other. And everyone's kind of like watching, like, whoa, what's going on? <laughs> They're just kind of like completely focused on each other, just ripping at each other. It's really funny. Yeah, and, you know, it, it starts off as this very bitter kind of almost, not rivalry, but, you know, they, they cannot seem to have a pleasant conversation when they're in the same room. And it, it's, nev- it's never just about what they're arguing about. <laughs> There's a lot of baggage behind these arguments. Yeah, you can you can sense the his history between the two. What is it said that Obi Wan and Qui Gon, or is Qui Gon even mentioned? Oh, yeah, yeah. The, the story behind that is Obi uh, Qui Gon and Obi Wan were assigned to protect her during like an insurgency on Mandalore, and they spent like a year on the run together, going through one uh, death defying situation after the other, and, they, and her and um, Obi Wan fell in love uh, over the course of that. But uh, in the end. Obi-Wan chose the Jedi Order over uh, their relationship. I-, I love how Anakin instantly picks up on that. Like, it's like, was there ever anything between you? And Obi-Wan's like, I don't see how that has anything to do with the situation at hand. Yeah, he definitely, like, you almost see Anakin and Obi-Wan at that point. Yeah. But so I-, I thought that it was her who decided not to follow through because you have his line saying, you know, had you said the word, I would have left the Order. Ye- okay, maybe. But she seems to be more. It's her that initiates that conversation there, where you know, you know I've always, you know, she, where she confessed that she actually loved him, and it seems to be he's the one with, with hesitations. Hmm. I almost wish we got even more from them because then you have, you have the conversation of where where you have Anakin open in the in the cabin, and he's like, you know, you obviously had feelings for her. Why didn't you follow that? And he's like, I I know that, but I think he's like, you know, it ha- still haunts him. But he lives for the Jedi Code, and you see, and you see like and it, it, I love how this adds a whole new layer to the way I look at Obi Wan Kenobi as a character, because you know he's always been the very straight laced guy, but to know that that's that that was a choice he had to make. He was faced with the same choice Anakin had. He was faced with the, with the possibility of falling in love and leaving the Order, 
but he he chose this life and now he has to live with that choice of and you know and that possibility of a, that relationship kind of looming over him for the rest of his life and i i love the way um james what's, what's his name james arnold taylor yeah the, the way james arnold taylor just voices that kind of you know he he's confident in the choice he made but there's still that regret i, I wonder what what is meant by that then? Because he's still, and I, I should have put on the subtitles. I couldn't tell if he if he said, you know, had you said it, I would have, or if you had said the word, I would have left the Jedi Order, as I believe the quote. Yeah, it, I think the the moment in the films that this enriches the most for me is in Revenge of the Sith, whenever he asks if the children are Anakin's, and he just says, "I'm so sorry." I, you know, I feel like he can relate. Uh, not you know to the prospect of children, but he can relate to their situation so much more now, knowing this. And maybe that's why he's so easygoing on Anakin's obvious attachment to Padme is that he maybe he's ash- he's ashamed of his own weaknesses in that area, or maybe he's like, well, you know, I worked through it. Anakin will too as well, kind of thing. And here he it almost just seems like you know maybe if, if I'm not too hard on him about it, maybe you know I don't think that's it in the movie, but you know. It almost seems as if he's saying, you know, if I'm not too hard on Anakin about it, he's not going to be too hard on me about it. Um, because he doesn't, you, you have that moment where he's like, I don't, I don't see the relevance that has at the situation at hand. But there are other moments where he's taken off guard, but he's not overly combative about it. <laughs> when I love the line, whenever Anakin says, you know, you go help your girlfriend. <laughs> You know, instantly he just responds to like, okay, wait. <laughs> it completely registers like, yeah, right. I'm going to go see my girlfriend. Wait, 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 what? <laughs> lot, lot of great character stuff in here. Um, and also another thing I got to mention is the, the, the assassin droids are absolutely horrifying. Like with the guys, with he's puppeteering the dead clone's oh. body. And then the, the tiny droids that come out of them after they're killed are even more scary. Oh, just when they're like going up under the helmet and just, you know, just trying to imagine what they do to these people. Yeah, that puppet thing was like nightmare fuel. Yeah, this whole the like the little spider type droid. It almost felt like the what you know with the mouth thing. It almost felt like Indiana Jones stuff. Like Lucas was like, oh, you know, I've kind of done stuff like this before, but now he's doing it in a sci-fi way. Let's traumatize some kids. How about that? And I think this is my new favorite line. Merrick, you have the romantic soul of a slug. Yeah, <laughs> and, and she just gets a great moment where she uh, is able to you know disarm him like in a second like that and, you know again you know they they have all these chances to make her unlike to make her pacifism seem weak but they never they always take the go the extra step to make her a legitimately strong and decisive character i mean she even says you know the line i'm i'm not gonna not defend myself show that it's not just this i am i'm i don't believe in in violence so much to the point to where you know i'm gonna just stand there and get shot to death which is almost what it felt like with the uh the lerman and the and the season prior yeah but here she definitely seems she retains all the principles that i think they had while at the same time being a little bit more real world about it <laughs> and uh, you know the line where america's like who will strike first and brand themselves a cold-blooded killer and of course anakin kills him he's like yeah that's that's not terribly subtle <laughs> foreshadowing right there yeah even all the music the imperial march to boot and so uh, next episode is The Duchess of Mandalore, also directed by Brian Kalen O'Connell and written by Drew Z. Gre- and written by Drew Z. Greenberg and Brian Larson. 
Uh, in this one, the Duchess is fighting in the Senate, trying to maintain Mandalore's neutrality as Death Watch keeps, you know, creating attacks and propaganda and just doing their best to get the Republic to send troops over. And she rightfully says, you know, if you send troops over, not only will that break our neutrality because it will show the sep- it will bring war because the separatists are now going to attack us because we're no longer neutral. It'll also uh, make our people break out into unrest and destroy everything we've worked for as far as maintaining this pacifism. And this one plays a lot like a, a 90s political thriller. I mean, just all of the, these layers, layer upon layers of conspiracy and, you know, she, she and like assassination attempts and she doesn't know who to trust. And you have like, is a point where she's falsely accused of murder and she's on the run. And, and it's, it's just, it really has that sense of paranoia that you, you really feel, you feel in those kind of a political thrillers of that era. Yeah. And cause you kind of see the, the two coins or the two sides of the coin that those movies usually have, which is, you know, the more action heavy moments of being on the run and things like that while never really shortchanging like the political nuance of the story. And I feel like, again, the Senate here feels like a fully functioning like political entity, um, you know, having to expedite the hearing while she's not there, like all of these different things happening. It feels like there's so many different things in motion. And every time something bit gets put into motion, it feels earned and it makes sense in the context. And I love that, you know, up till now in this show, Coruscant has been safe. It has been the good guys. This is where you go to rest and recover after all the battles in the edge of the galaxy. But from now on, after this arc, Coruscant is just as dangerous underneath as anywhere else. And like, and you're up to the Senate has been, you know, obviously we know Palpatine's in charge, but it's been a force for good. But here we just see the rampant corruption, the fact that it it might not even be your friend. You you might have it might be your enemy in this moment, and it it, it really breaks our our trust in in democracy in this system that we're supposedly fighting to defend. Now we don't even trust it. It's, you're kind of paralleling Anakin's arc, so where you know it's causing you to question all your beliefs. And again, it feels it doesn't feel like it's contradicting anything we've heard though. It, this really does feel like it's Lucas expounding on ideas that he kind of planted in the films. And next episode is Death Trap, directed by Stuart Lee and written by Doug Petrie with Juzy Greenberg and Brian Larson. In this one, a group of clone cadets uh, tour the Star Destroyer Endurance, um, on which uh, Mace Windu is in command. And hidden among them is a young Boba Fett who is determined to kill uh, Windu for uh, that thing that happened with his dad in Attack of the Clones. And he's assisted by Ara Singh and Bosk uh, and a guy named Castus. I do like the, I like this art for what it does for Boba Fett. You know, you know, obviously bringing him back into the story, you know, giving us a, giving us a chance to find out, you know, how he went from this bloodthirsty, sadistic kid into a bloodthirsty, sadistic <laughs> adult. Yeah, that was always my number one question. <laughs> Get him, Dad. <laughs> yeah. So this is uh, this. Is just more of a minor thing. Did it was it weird to you to have like the majority of them voiced by him and then one by D. Bradley Baker? So I'm assuming the one by D. Bradley Baker would have been the the kind of the leader. Yeah, I didn't even notice. I'm, I, <laughs> huh? And that was uh, I, I, me, I knew Daniel Logan who plays Young Boba Fett in Attack of the Clones voices uh, the young all the clone cadets. I, I didn't know D. Bradley Baker voiced one. Or is it, a, is it a mix of the two, or is it just D. Bradley Baker? I think it's 
it's D. Bradley Baker voices like one of the eight clone cadets or however many there are. Interesting. I, I wasn't paying attention. I didn't notice. Oh, that's weird. For me, it just it sticks out so weirdly because it, I don't know, maybe maybe it is just me, but it sounds just like a grown man trying to sound like a little kid. Huh. I, I, I noticed that. Um, so in this one, you have a boba like sabotaging the ship. You know, first he tries to set a bomb in Mason's room, and then he blows up the main reactor. And you like I I like how he's he's still trying to pretend he's on this noble quest for revenge. Like you know, you murdered my father, so you deserve to die. But he keeps making you know choice after choice that puts clones in danger, that puts innocent people in danger on this path for revenge. You just see like the slow the kind of corruption of his soul happening. Obviously, he's also with a really bad person in or Singh. who later gets pushed off a cliff yeah so it's right and yeah so like we, we see i love that he he tries to maintain that no i'm not a murderer i'm just here for windu but then over the next course of these next three episodes he keeps making morally compromised choices that hurt other people and you just see kind of the corruption of uh, you know his corruption happening kind of at a realistic pace where he doesn't start out you know as this evil kid yeah i think you know he, it, they do kind of, well, really, he wasn't a, a character very much in Attack of the Clones. And so the, it wasn't exactly a, a blank slate, but it is cool that they're able to take what little they had and actually develop a character around him. He's not in Rebels at all, is he? No. No. I wouldn't mind, like, new material, because by the by the time we last see him, I know this isn't his last arc in the series... But I feel like by the t- the last time we see him in the Clone Wars, he still isn't, you know, the character that I think he is in, um, you know, the original trilogy. And I'm not the kind of person who thinks that, you know, every single moment um, for every single character has to be filled in. But that'd be kind of cool to see. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what they do with him here, I mean, I agree with everything you said. It is, you see that slow chipping away at who he is, like... I don't think it's not genuine at all. I, I think he really does. He's put off by all this violence and he, he finds it unnecessary. And I don't think it's a show at all or, or that he's even trying to convince himself. But, you know, just by allowing it to happen and the fact that, you know, you know, he doesn't end up getting Mace, but he's involved in all these big plans and you start to feel more like an adult. And, I've, you know, these these morally compromising decisions... Or they're not even just compromising for people like Ora Singh. They're just evil decisions. They get results. And so you see if this is kind of what he's witnessing at this age, you know, it's going to have an effect and, and turn him into the guy we know. Yeah, no one starts off, you know, like Ora Singh or Cad Bane. You know, they have to destroy themselves first. Um, so yeah, next episode is R2 Come Home, uh, directed by Giancarlo Volpe. And this one is up with. Eogen Mahoney uh, with with Drusy Greenberg and Brian Larson. Uh, this one, yeah, after after Boba Fett has sabotaged the ship and has crashed, Mace Windu and Anakin uh, go to the crashed ship for survivors, but are trapped by an explosion set by Boba. And R two is left on his own to defend them and then go get help. What really one thing that really stuck out to me is the the opening of this where they're flying down through the crash zone, and it's this giant like burning Hulk that's been crashed to the ground. It's really haunting, like almost beautiful how it's envisioned, but also really creepy as they're kind of going through it, through the um, innards of the ship and they're finding dead bodies that have been executed. It's just, there's a really great atmosphere. 
Yeah, that's one thing. You know, even whenever their facial and like animations and textures aren't phenomenal, um, these bigger environments I feel like are almost always beautiful. Um, whether it's like the hauntingly beautiful, like in this case, or just this epic, grand thing like landing at Point Rain. Um, but yeah, there's so many details, like like the bodies, and even in in the background, you know, they they draw attention to a lot of it. But I just feel like every image is so packed with. Um, something that kind of tells a story about it and that's just why the whole image together feels impactful and haunting like you say this episode like i don't dislike this episode but i think one of my issues with it here is that it feels filler maybe it feels like almost one of those stories you would hear in the opening narration or something well, you mean like the first half? Yeah, like just the idea of them being spending so much of the episode trapped under and waiting on R2 because, you know, we go back, we see Boba for a little bit and then we go back to Anakin and, and Mace for a bit and then R2 is kind of like made a character as well. It just feels, it feels like a bunch of different like actions that are happening, but I don't know, it's just this whole episode feels like it exists just to get to the next one. Hmm. I get that. I, I, I think it does do some interesting things where you have Mace Windu who just doesn't give a darn about droids, and he is like very disapproving of Anakin's attachment to R two. And we get you know get R two a chance to prove why he's the best. I, I I love the sequence where he's defending the bridge all by himself, like hurling stuff down the the uh, the shaft as they try to climb up, and then <laughs> just it is really pushing it. But the way he takes out the gun dark is just awesome. Just I love the sound effects where he pop like the, the, the popping sound as the sucker sticks to the uh, Gundark's head and then the little twing <laughs> when he sends the ship off and and hurls it over to explode on a rock like they make it just believable enough that he could do this that it works even though you know they're, they're definitely pushing it but I think the comical sound effects and re- the reaction of the Gundark kind of sells it yeah and again it just. I think I I can completely buy it within this universe because I feel like that entire scene just has George Lucas written on it. Yeah. And so our next episode is Lethal Trackdown, and this one is uh, directed by Dave Filoni. Orisink and Boba still have Admiral Killian and a couple other officers from the Endurance hostage, and they say they're going to keep killing them until Mace Windu faces them. So Plo Koon and Ahsoka go to investigate uh, and hunt them down, and they uncover leads that lead them to Florum. Yay! Just some more Plo being awesome. Oh, I'll say more, uh, more a Hondo. Oh, oh yeah, that as well. But that always like that's just a given when he's on there. Yeah, Plo, Plo and Ahsoka are just a great team together. This one is kind of they go to a couple bars and and basically eavesdrop in some conversations until they find someone who happens to know someone who knows someone and then leads them to Florum. Uh, but the real the real great part of this is when they uh. They land, and I love that Hondo just, he's like, I've dealt with Jedi before, I don't, I don't, I don't need you in my life, so yeah, there's a trap, just, just so you know, leave me out of it. Yeah, this is a completely different side for him, you know, it's cool to see him interact with people who aren't Obi-Wan and Anakin, because, you know, at this point, there is a very clear and established dynamic between them, and it just seems like just mutually understood, but here, you know, it's, it's these kind of newer faces and he, like you said, he's, he's dealt with them at this point. And maybe he's not going to chance having that, you know, weirdly friendly relationship almost that he has with them. 
So it's just he, you know, plays all his cards right there. And he's like, yeah, this is everything there. I'm doing this because I just want no involvement. And it's, it's, it's a different layer to him. Not that it contradicts him, but it is different to see this guy who's usually like all in on whatever's going on to just be like, I want to wash my hands clean of all this stuff. Uh, and I, I really love the standoff in the bar where you know each side is prepared and comes in with multiple contingencies. You have each person just takes one per- the other side hostage and they're kind of the standoff. And the way it all plays out feels really believable when it, when just everything goes crazy. It never feels like any side has to take it easy for the other side to get away. It's just like the it's just really well edited together. I think uh, you know Filoni is really good at creating this kind of action sequence. Yeah, it just it looks cool too. Like how fluid it is of uh, Plo instantly like force pushing the table to block the blast and then in like one fluid motion after that cutting the blaster in half like it, it just looks cool yeah and Arsene dropping the bomb and then eventually she leaves and abandons Boba which is their whole relationship has been really interesting I'm I guess like she owed his father something because she seems she seems to genuinely care for him and be you know actually invested in training him as a bounty hunter in her you know, in her own evil way and he is genuinely devastated when she betrays him i, I kind of wish we had an episode kind of d- developing that relationship because there's a lot of interesting like subtle hints there but it's never really completely laid out exactly what they have together yeah and another relationship that would be funny to to develop it out although not as like pertinent to the plot it would I love that there's a history between her and uh, and Hondo. I think Hondo has a history with everyone in the galaxy. Probably. <laughs> uh, one of my favorite lines of this entire season is when he sees Boba and he says, Not mine, I take it. It's <laughs> <laughs> so good. Yeah. I-, I love when Ahsoka just goes all Captain America on the Slave One and brings it out of the sky by hand. Um, what interesting touch... I'm not sure how I feel about is after after they capture Boba and, and Orisings ran away and Plo takes Boba to Hondo to convince him to give up the location to save the hostages. And I never know. Like, like Jim Cummings plays it really great, but I, I don't know if I buy that. He's the type to be talking about, you know, it's the Honor. honorable thing to do. Yeah. It's like you really seriously. <laughs> I don't know. It just it would. It's a great scene, but it just feels a little off for him as a character. Yeah, I thought the exact same thing. Where you know when he gets up close, and he's like, "It's what your father would want." I'm like, "Well, his father was kind of a scumbag." Yeah, his father <laughs> was all kinds of shady, um, trying to kill people in their sleep and all. Um, and you know, I just don't feel. What does that mean coming from you? Because we haven't even really established your connection or relationship with Django. Um, mm-hmm. And again, you know, this show hasn't really given us any reason to think that he's one of just, you know, on, like just honor-centric kind of characters. You so think? it, it <laughs> feels like they're relying on that. To believe he's not. <laughs> exactly. And so it feels like they're relying on that trip. Like we're a thief, but, you know, honor among thieves. Um I feel like for Hondo, it's like, I'll say and do whatever I need. But here, you know, it seems like they're very much trying to play that scene as if he's genuine. And yeah, I'm not against the the writing 
in itself isn't even bad and the voice acting definitely is great it's just in the moment it doesn't feel in line with everything else and uh one last thing i i love when we finally get that conversation between boba and mace when he's like you know you murdered my father i'll never forgive you and he just looks at him like well you're going to have to and just walks away uh, he's definitely the kind of jedi who would say that you you'd think of any other master there and you'd almost think that maybe they would use that as like a teaching opportunity. But him is like, nope, we're going to have to. And then he just leaves. Suck it up, buttercup. Yeah. Yeah. So that uh, is season two. Um, what are your, all your overall thoughts and, and uh, how does it compare to season one? Um, I really like it. I feel like, you know, with things like episodes like The Deserter, where we, you know, we continue the idea of clone independence and then the Mandalore stuff where we talk about how there's a lot of there's a lot more nuance than we think and how the galaxy looks at Republican occupation and things like that. So I really love how they they don't just try to ditch season one. Because you know, season one was received okay, but it really wasn't a, a an initial hit, I don't believe. Um mm-hmm. it had its people who were gonna watch it week to week. But I love that they really do continue to develop like all of all of their ideas from that one. I think I might actually still kind of prefer season one, but to me, season one and two are very similar. Yeah. I had, I had a lot easier time picking out a top five. Like there there were more standout episodes in season one. However, this episode is far more consistent than season one is like, for example, there's no Jar Jar in this season. Not at all. Yeah. After he had like three, three episodes, maybe three or four episodes in season one, you had to come here. He's not even there at all. You like the great thing is you don't even miss him. I I, I never even noticed that until I read it online somewhere. But then like yeah, and it just and there, there's nothing that stands out as a, like a real. There's no bomb bad Jedi. I think the worst one probably would be a Senate spy. But even that is is not terrible. Yeah, it's definitely. It feels like they've got a a better idea of what kind of show they are and what kind of story works. Um, yeah, I, I think. With season one, there were just more arcs across season one that I think I really enjoyed. Like, I, I love the beginning of the Christophsis thing, um, the hidden an- enemy and cat and mouse. That That's just really fun. And Just bass and just... Yeah. Um, but here, I, I'm still a, a big fan of this season as well. Yeah. Just very consistent and well thought out. Um, so, what are your top five favorite episodes and your favorite arc? Uh, my favorite arc would be the... Um, Landing at Point Rain, yep. Geonosian arc. I feel like that's just uh, probably understood. That, that, that's my favorite as well. I love just it covers it just four episodes. It covers four completely distinct genres without feeling like it's you know without giving you whiplash. And it, I you know I, I'm iffy on the first episode, but the, the next three episodes are just so on point. Yeah. Um. So number five would probably be. The Mandalore plot, I, I really enjoyed that one. Although, well, actually, I would, I would say number five would be the Zillow Beast. Um, because I probably have more issues with that one than I do the Mandalore plot. But the visuals are just a lot of fun. Um, then number Zillow four Beast would, or Zillow Beast Strikes Back? Uh, the Zillow Beast, probably. Although I, I enjoy both. I, I really wish I could just say both. Because the reason I love both, like they both really play up the tropes to the kinds of movies that I love. Um, but I think it's just because my favorite scene would be everything that happens with like the beast in the pit and as it 
like the immediate aftermath of him emerging. Uh, and then for number four, it would be uh, the Mandalore plot. Uh, I really like how politically nuanced that episode feels, you know, with it being the second time we've brought up um, that occupations aren't always looked at as a, in a positive light. Um, and seeing Mandalore, I just, I love the aesthetic there. And then looking at, like being able to see more layers to Obi-Wan in his past is, is really great. Um, number three would be a holocron heist. Uh, I love that how, how well put together the plan is. I feel like from start to finish, you can really follow the logic of that entire heist sequence. And it's a lot of fun. Um, and Cad Bane is just the coolest bounty hunter out there, bar none. Yeah, that would be number three. And then I, I usually try to not pick multiple episodes from the same arc when doing like the top five. But because of how distinct and unique all of the ones from uh, the Point Rain arc is, I'm going to choose number two as landing at Point Rain just because, I mean, it instantly took me back to the feelings I had during Attack of the Clones, like the last sequence there. Just... We're seeing cinematic epicness mm-hmm. on full display. Um, and again, you know, there are very clear military goals there and they all make sense. It's not just, hey, we're going to keep shooting at them until they until they stop. Like there's plans put in place. Um, and then number one would be Brain Invaders. Uh, I like what it does for Ahsoka as a character. You know, there's just something really, uh, it's just a strong visual image. That last moment with her holding uh, Barris, and they're both frozen there. Um, and then I, seeing the, like the sci-fi horror genre collide with like Star Wars brand of sci-fi is a lot of fun. And I love how just, it feels very much intentionally like Ridley, someone like Ridley Scott's brand of, of sci-fi horror with the, you know, the, the aliens that, you know, go inside of you and control you things like that. So just a really fun and really cool and visually striking episode. Yeah. Um, so my top five in no particular order would be uh, Cargo of Doom. This is this is where we just get to see Cad Bane go all out, and it's really clever seeing the ways he gets out of trouble. And I think there's some good emotional stuff with Anakin and Ahsoka. Also, the Mandalore plot I would add. I just really like seeing uh, Obi Wan and Satine's relationship. Uh, Landy at, at <laughs> Landy at Point Rain and Brain Invaders are also my favorites. But since you already have them, I'm going to throw in the Lightsaber Lost. It's just a fun little inconsequential episode, but I love. Um, I love seeing Master Sinoob. And the final one would be The Deserter. Uh, this, again, you know, adds in another cool angle to look at the clone troopers, and uh, the, the last shootout is just awesome. Yeah, I wanted to include The Deserter as well. That's I, I love Cut as a character and his how sincere he is and his dynamic with Rex, and I think it does a lot for Rex as a character too. Um, mm-hmm. So that was really close to being in my top five. All right, um, so that was season two of The Clone Wars. Uh, again, if you like this show, I'd ask you guys to please go and subscribe and rate and review us on iTunes. And then if you want to follow us, you can like us on Facebook, where there's Franchise Critique Podcast. And if you want to follow us on Twitter, we are there at Franchised Pod. And if you want to find our older episodes, you can go to FranchiseCritiquePodcast.com. And where can people follow you, James? Uh, you can follow me uh, at Letterboxd. Um, that's really the primary place outside of here. Uh, I've almost completely given up on actually like writing extensive reviews on movies I see, but I'll, I'll try to get my quick thoughts down there. And then I'm still kind of just obsessed with lists so you can see different rankings and, and all the movies I've seen and thoughts on them there. Uh, oh, and I guess I should say 
my my name there. It's it's J L Hamry, J L H A M R I. And I'm also on Letterboxd, and there's Gabriel Green. And if you want to follow me on Twitter, I am there as Gabe A Green. So next episode, we will be back with season three. Yet again, another season that is arguably better than the previous one. So, yeah. And one whose order is probably the most confusing, though. Yes. Again, it will be chronological order. So until next week, we will see you in the next season. This effort is no longer profitable. Profitable.